If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters, but not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit waltherarms.com. everyone, Matt Lanfer here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. Today's episode is number 317. We're going to be talking about survival concepts. What is this, episode three of our series so far? Are we at three or four? I think we're three. Three, I believe. Three? That's the third time, yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to be discussing food, water, and then also aspects of fire. Uh, today is October 19th, 2022. The cool things about these topics is this is stuff that can apply to everyone, whether you're an, an, a, a, a suburbanite, an urbanite, or a rural type person, because it's just cool stuff. Uh, some of the some of the concepts we're going to discuss also may may kind of influence some of your decision making when it comes to preparedness. Uh, with COVID, it was a very as a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with someone about this. COVID was a very interesting dress rehearsal for what it's like to be without certain resources because we were experiencing bare shelves in stores kind of sucked um now what will happen if the internet goes dead oh mass hysteria dogs and cats living together um probably we'd have some problems with uh, supply chains 
some of the things we're going to talk about is a little bit more self-sustainment. It's cool. I like it. Part of this though. So let's say we, we do live in, in a, a scenario where internet's dead. We no longer have internet. Well, no one has books anymore. So they don't have any reference guides, any reference materials. So some of these concepts are probably things we need to know before we need them. And we need to be well-versed and practiced. So what this means is pay, pay good attention, take some notes. When there's stuff that kind of sticks out in your mind, do some more research on it. Um, some of this stuff, if we're going to talk about specific tools that are going to help you at your, at your task, these are things you need to have before the emergency and you need to know how to use them before an emergency or even before you go camping. Um, Craig, was it you that said you went out for an extended duration or was it Shane? Or maybe it was uh, Evan. One of you guys went for an extended duration and it was a bad idea. Fortunately, you survived. It was probably Shane. Um, I think no, it was did, Craig's second trip, right? Yeah, I did two 30-day oh, okay. trips. I did two 30-day well, – this is when I was a much younger person. Yes. Uh, two 30-day trips by myself with nothing but a knife. Uh, yeah. First time was good. Second trip was – I learned a lot of lessons, and yeah. it puts me in the spot where I am now because I did a lot of things wrong. Yeah. And I don't recommend that at all. It sounds cool uh, just talking yeah. about it, but it's one of those things that's not cool. It wasn't fun. It's Yeah. It was, it was very disheartening and depressing and almost died, so – yeah. yeah, it's difficult, man. It's difficult. And so basically the, the parallel I see with our normal conversations, when we're talk, normally talking about self-defense, guns, gear, mindset, all that training, that's like going into a deadly force situation without being properly trained, yeah. having the mindset, having the tools. These are things you can avoid, but it, yeah, it requires effort now. If we put it right back into that sort of analogy, it would be like, you know, maybe getting your concealed carry permit maybe getting a nice firearm and then just getting into that fight. You yeah. really have no business purposely putting yourself in that fight. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. It was foolhardy and stupid. Yeah. But fortunately, well, number one, fortunately you're here. Number mm -hmm. two, fortunately you can share, share this. And that's one of the things that's one of the foundations of primary and secondary getting a bunch of people that have been there, done that messed up. I've spent so much money where I shouldn't have. Uh, I can, I can help people say, avoid this. Don't do this. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Learn from my mistakes. And it's going to save time and money. Same with survival stuff. Yeah. I think there's, there's with the onslaught of YouTube and even, even my publishers with the books that I've written, they don't, they, they want me to set myself up as an expert, whatever that is. Yeah. Right. And I have a very difficult time saying I'm an expert at yeah. the things that we're talking about. And they don't, they did not like me talking about some of my failures. And I feel like those are some of the absolute best lessons to share because I mean, I think there's valuable Intel in doing things right and learning from it, but it's just, there's some lessons that you'll never forget that you just, I don't want to, I mean, it's just like raising kids. I don't want to see my kids making my same mistakes. And Amen. I don't want the people that I help and share information with to make the same mistakes that I've made. If I can help them, that doesn't mean <laughs> this is kind of a, uh, a weird area to dig into, but there's value in screwing up and learning from it too. So absolutely. I, sometimes I let the participants in our classes do that on purpose but there's a limit to even that where, you know, you can knock somebody down so much that they can't learn anymore. And it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. 
Absolutely. And that's one of the, that actually was one of my favorite takeaways that I learned from, uh, I was a assistant instructor at direct action resource center, Darcy a few years ago. And I saw a couple students on, I was on the catwalk watching a couple students and I saw, okay, they're, they're about to run into an issue. I see this issue. They have an area that's not being covered and they think they have all their bases covered. Do I let them know and let ev- let everyone know and say, Hey, stop. This is what's going on. Do you see the problem or do I let them fail? And they have a much more meaningful right. failure. Well, it's a controlled environment. Let them fail yeah. and let them learn. And then they can pass on that information to others. I absolutely think that's a, I say this all the time, but in, in my work, I've spent as much time learning how to teach people as I do the things that I teach people. Yeah. And I think learning when to let people fail and when to step in and just pull them back up out of the water is a very valuable skill to have as, as a professional instructor. Yeah. And so it's, that's it's a lot of that comes from experience, but you can study that subject matter with other, I mean, you know, I can learn from you the way you teach, even though we teach totally different things. Yeah. And I, I think that's valuable to be around other professional instructors. That's why I love being in here with Evan and Shane on everything that they've shared. I'm learning from them. And I think that's a critical aspect of what, what I call there's, there's practice and there's testing and there's training. And those are three very different things. Yeah. And I mean, it might be semantics to some, but I think those are very, very different things. And what we see a lot on YouTube is people just practicing with stuff, testing stuff, but they're not really training. There's a big difference. So, yeah, that's not the subject of the discussion tonight, but I think it's important. It's an aspect. It's definitely an aspect. And before we really start, um, my favorite thing to say, and I try to say it at the beginning when I can remember to those of you listening watching or whatever, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. We're about to do intros. You're going to hear where these guys are at, where you can find them. If you like what they say, give them likes, subscribe. If there's something especially meaningful that they pro- provide, give it a share. That's kind of beneficial to everyone involved to include everyone that's going to see wherever you share this. So that's yeah, this is trying to put the algorithm in our favor. That goes for primary and secondary. Most likely you're going to be here with us for this whole di- conversation. Hit the like right now. It's going to save you some effort. You know, that, that it takes so much effort to hit like. It's going to save you some effort later on. And you, well, you won't forget later. So my, yeah, my background's in law enforcement. I've been doing the cop thing since last century. Uh, I live in the mountains, but I don't do much with them. I look at them every day. I appreciate them. Uh, the... Being outdoors, I'm on graves right now, and I go on nightly walks as part of my duties. And the weather has been absolutely amazing. Clear skies. I've been staring at the stars a lot. And uh, it's it's been absolutely wonderful. And and seeing this makes me think, number one, how small I am in the, in the grand scheme of things, but also how how, how, how helpless and how uh, fragile everything is in the grand scheme of things. That's, and that's why we're talking about food and water today. Cause that all clearly comes together. Um, but yeah, but minimal training with this kind of stuff. So I really enjoy these discussions and I try to come up with questions um, that, that, uh, that I think of that I think are important, but those of you that are listening or watching live, 
make sure you're using the Q&A section. If you have any questions, we can bring them up during the live show. That's one of the benefits of being a Patreon member, uh, Patreon supporter. So with that, let's uh, do some intros. Evan, what do you have for us? Well, hopefully more knowledge than I had last time. Um, I've, uh, I've been spending time in the outdoors since I was a kid. Um, you know, I had the fortune of having a father who brought me into the outdoors. Oh, I, I guess six weeks old, we were hunting on the Uncompahgre Plateau. I was obviously being carried, but uh, at any rate, um, been knocking around the outdoors my whole life and, you know, sometimes more intensively than others. And now I've got a little outdoor gear company that allows me to spend more time outdoors and uh, I've done a little bit of teaching. And uh, so I guess that's my background. Oh, and the thing that's important that all of these conversations are driving home to me, I live right where the Rocky Mountains of Colorado meet the desert. So my experience base is very strongly rooted in the arid West, which yes. has different procedures, different gear, everything. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and we've brought it up in the past. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes where we're talking about survival and yeah, this is the third one of them. Uh, Bear in mind, your environment may be completely different from everything that we're discussing. So you may need to cater it slightly differently. Uh, so I'm in the, what I guess it's considered the Intermountain West. I'm in Northern Utah. So Utah has different bands. You have the green band that's nice alpine. Then you have kind of brown green. Then you have brown red. And then you have red at the very south. I'm up in the north and very green, uh, nice mountains. It's really cool up here. Temperature. Speaking of cool, though, I'm also uh, the temperature is a little lower, but my environment's definitely going to be different than others. Craig? Yeah. Um, to just bridge off that, I'm from the mixed hardwood forest of the Cumberland Plateau, specifically in Kentucky, where we have a whole lot of green in summertime. And we're just now having actually an unseasonably cold spell in the last few days. So getting down into the 30s for us here this early and had snow two days ago, which is oh, wow. really incredibly odd for us in Kentucky. And uh, I, I'm the director of Nature Reliant School headquartered here. I teach in several states, particularly here in the Southeast and Midwest, and have been out West a couple of times, been to Utah once in Texas and what have you, teaching courses uh, in survival, uh, man tracking. We teach land navigation and nature immersion. I'm a, ma I'm a certified master naturalist too. So a lot of that is involved. Yeah. Cool. So the topic we're going to be ta talking about is uh, food water. And that's considering stuff that you may pack with you if you're going somewhere on foot or if you're going to get all your, if you're going to live off the land essentially. And there are also going to be, there's going to be some discussion a little bit about preparedness, MREs, storage and that kind of stuff. So with that in mind, as far as water is concerned, what are, what are right off the top of your heads, what are the biggest, what are the most important aspects for you guys as far as water is concerned, whether it's being what you're carrying or what you're going to take from a body of water? So one thing, just to put this in context for those yep. who haven't watched the other two episodes, uh, we were just kind of going off of the rule of threes, which is how I like to think about prioritizing the things I'm prepared for. Um, and that's three seconds. Um, it's basically how long you have until you're going to die from want of something. Um, and three seconds is mindset. Uh, three minutes is your airway or your blood. Um, 
three hours of shelter. And so we really uh, honed in on shelter and keeping yourself warm in a previous episode. Um, three days is water and then uh, three weeks is food. So that's an order of priority, but the there's other considerations, obviously. I mean, that's how long until you die, probably. But if I'm out in the desert and it's 110 degrees and I'm dumb enough to be standing out in the middle of the desert, I need a lot more water. It's going to kill me a lot more quickly than that because I need the water to essentially help with shelter, keep help with keeping my body temperature where it needs to be. So those are loose guidelines, but it's how we characterize this conversation. So yeah, we're today we're talking about water. And I mean, with that context, I just hand it off to Craig as far as what he has to say about water. Thanks for bringing that up. I think it's real critical for everybody to understand that there's a priority of needs and that that really helps start the conversation really well. I'm, I'm glad Evan brought that up again. I, I think to go back to your question, what's what comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind is how much water we need and what are we using it for? Because a lot of people think about water just being this is what we're drinking. This is what we might make our mountain house meal with or something. Depending upon the situation, whether we're looking at a backcountry survival situation or whether we're trying to apply these principles to disaster readiness, like a hurricane or tornado or earthquake or whatever it might be. I think we need to keep in mind that somewhere, somewhere around a real conservative estimate is a gallon of water a day per person. That provides some water to drink, and quite frankly, I don't know that that would be enough, and then some water for hygiene. So, and again, it probably, if, if you're going at the bare minimum, I think we got to keep in mind at least, at least a gallon of water per person per day. That's a lot of water if you're not used to sourcing that in the environment. And so I know understanding and I, I want to hear Evan talk about this because there's a lot of the ways that he gathers water in an arid environment that I'm just completely unfamiliar with and I need to understand. But um, you in Kentucky, for me, it's not really all that hard. You know, Kentucky has more navigable water ways than any other state in the country besides Alaska. So we have water all over the place. Getting there and making sure that it's purified and well, filtered and purified is is a totally different thing. But being able to get water is usually not an issue for us here. But I think I would like to start the conversation off with that, with basically how much water do we need? Because hygiene is critical. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to carry baby wipes with you or whatever. You can carry water and, and a rag, a bandana to clean you off at the tent or at the hammock or your hooch or whatever you're set up. But I, I think we need to keep in mind that, that that is critical to being able to have enough water to do what we need. And I think it might be also important just to point out, and this might be Captain Obvious, but for someone that's not thinking about it, it might not be. When you say a gallon of water, that does not include for food preparation, correct? That well, is it, it just depends on how you look at it. I mean, okay. if it was me, I would want more than a gallon of water. I'm yeah. just, I just want to be real clear. But I'm talking about enough to stay alive. Yeah. And that's and that's pretty much it. I'm not talking about running optimally. I'm not talking about backpacking up and down the Rocky Mountains like Evan and those guys out there do. I'm talking about, hey, I'm I'm stuck now. I'm going to stay right here. I've got to have some water for my for my intake for hydration, and I've got to have some left over for hygiene. Then minimum. <laughs> I know I keep emphasizing that, but it is absolutely a minimum of a gallon of water a day. 
Evan? Uh, so, yeah, it, it varies. Um, so when I was fighting fire, I'd go through six quarts by 1 p.m., which was about all that I'd be carrying on my line pack. And at that point, we'd be needing a drop from a helicopter or something. The whole crew would. Um, so, you know, that's one. And by the end of the day, easily two gallons of water, easily. Um, so that's one extreme. Right now, what I find... It, it kind of, so my context is backpacking, right? Uh, where it's dry. And the nice thing about the dry area is that we have sweat to evaporate to cool us off. Um, it works really well and I sweat really well. So I still go for, through a fair amount of water, but. Um, What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Usually what I will do is I will leave the trail head with three quarts of water. And that is enough to get me through, you know, moving, carrying a pack. That's enough to get me through noon or one, by which time I either have found a water source or I need to completely reevaluate what I'm doing. Um, typically in a backpacking trip on a given day, uh, six quarts of water pretty easily unless the temperatures are nice and cool. And that doesn't really cover a lot of hygiene. I mean, that's, that's really just water intake. And the food prep point is, you know, we say backpacking, you have two ways of carrying water. You can either um, carry it as water, or you can carry it in your food. So there are situations where, well, I know it's arid. I know I'm not going to find water. I might as well carry prehydrated food because it's going to taste better. Uh, and I'm going to carry that in addition to drinking water. The freeze-dried stuff's only helpful if you're going to be able to source water on the trail. Otherwise, you had to carry all your water with you anyway. Uh, so, I mean, that's a rough guideline. Out in the desert, boy, it starts looking like fire. And I honestly try to stay out of some of those extreme temperatures, like much more 90 degrees, and I'm going to go up in elevation. Um, but, you know, the times I've been out mountain biking, out around Moab and everything, again, two gallons a day is just really standard. So I guess also what the person plans on doing is definitely going to take a, be a part of that. If you're going to be on your feet, if you're going to be exerting yourself, your water intake is probably going to be a little different than I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to read. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely. the difference between a, survival mindset and the, even a hunting, rucking or pack backing or whatever mindset. I mean, a survival mindset is you 
calories in and calories out, water in, water out. You don't want to burn any more calories, no more water than you have to. So sit down, wait it out. If, if that's the logical situation where you know somebody's coming and looking for you, which is a huge if. However, um, you you wouldn't need that much water if you're just sitting there doing nothing. But man, if you're if you're hiking, you're going to do exactly what Evan just said. You're going to need a lot more water than a gallon. That's for sure. So talking about water that you're carrying on you, what about water? You're taking water from a body of water or a stream. What are considerations that you need to have to be able to ingest that without killing yourself or harming yourself? Well, I'd like to, I'd like to walk it back a little bit first. And if I can, I'm going to source water from the sky. Okay. Because I don't have to do as much to it typically than what is already running on the ground. And so if I can collect rainwater in some way, you know, if I set up a tent, I set up a tarp, I set up a hammock, have some sort of drip line or runoff to it where I'm collecting water. Uh, if I can just dig an indentation in the earth and line it with a plastic garbage bag, and then there goes my garbage bag again, Evan. I talk about them all the time, don't I? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> then I love garbage bags. Um, I can line it with a garbage bag, then I can collect water that way. Uh, snow, you don't necessarily need to be eating snow again in a survival situation where you're sitting there doing anything because it could lower your body temperature. But if you're mm. up doing anything, if you're hiking like Evan's doing, it's not going to be as uh, a major issue in that situation. But if you cram snow into a water bottle and let it melt inside your jacket, then you don't have to deal with that issue. Just keep in mind, you can cram a water bottle full of snow and it's going to be very little actual water. Yeah. So it's going to take more, a lot of effort. So that's, and even do, I mean, if do, I think we did talk about this on one of our other podcasts, Matt. I can't remember, but we talked about water briefly. Scott, was it Scott O'Grady? It was shot over Bosnia in the eighties. One of the ways that he gathered water is a lot of pilots are ejected with sponges underneath their, or in their, in their survival kit, their sear kit. Now it's a little bit different, but um, he was wiping down vegetation and getting rainwater off the vegetation with his sponge. Some of it was dew, that's some cool. of it was rain, and wringing that into his mouth because that's clean water. You just got to make sure you're getting it off um, plants and herbaceous material. That's not a problem for you to, you know, you don't want to be wiping off poison ivy or poison sumac or something of that nature, right? Um, so I think that would be the first thing I'd like to bring up is go that's for the cool. water that falls from the sky first, yeah. if that makes sense. And I know someone's listening and thinking, oh, we can't collect rainwater, though. Okay, we're not talking about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. That's yes, exactly can. right. <laughs> Evan, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, that's just one small part of this for me. From what Well, falls so he asked, yeah, he asked the question about how to, um, you know, how to make sure water is safe to drink from a given body of water, but... Mm -hmm. You know, I think in terms of, you know, like you said, where am I going to find water? How am I going to find water? Um, and so, you know, this is something that even if you're living in the city will put you in better touch with uh, the landscape around you. You really need to know what the seasonal rainfall looks like where you live. I mean, out here, you're paying attention. When was the last time it rained? When was the last time it snowed? What was the snowpack? Um, you know, like out here, 
this fall, we've actually had an unusually wet late summer and fall. So there's water sources that are flowing now and collected that there would not be in an average year in October. And so that gives me more latitude as, uh, about where I'm looking for water. Um, beyond that, and the thing is there's cycles. So there's like seasonal cycles, but there's also daily cycles. You know, if there is water, if, if there's a thunderstorm in the mountains, that water is eventually going to find its way downhill. So, you know, where I am 3000 foot lower, uh, there may not be water that day, but there might be a water surge the day after there's a thunderstorm up high that's going to come through the area that I am. So, you're always thinking about those kinds of things just because it gives you a better idea of where where you might find water. Uh, beyond that, you're thinking about terrain, right? You just got to step back and look at the terrain that you're in, and you've got to think about where water is going to flow in the terrain, where it's going to collect, where the ravines are that you might find water, uh, and also think about evaporation. So northern exposures are typically cooler. You're going to have much better luck finding water on northern exposures than on southern exposures. So, you know, if you're if you're out and you're like, well, it's getting to be that time of day, you know, if you're me, I need to find water or I need to stop what I'm doing or reevaluate or something, you know, then I start looking on all those, those shaded North facing pockets. Um, and then from there, once you've located an area like, okay, I'm in a stream bed, it's dry, but you can traverse up and down that stream bed, um, you know, quarter mile each direction. And again, you're looking at topography, but, um, depending upon where you think water is going to gather relative to the topography, it might be dry where you're standing, but you might be able to move upstream a little bit and, and find a pocket of water there. Um, and the desert, you know, when you're out in the hard desert is the same kind of thing. Water runs down canyons out in the desert. You find what are called Tanahas. I mean, there's places I know oh, within 10 miles of the house where you'd never think there was water, but, I just happen to know where there's like a deep hole in a canyon that never gets sun that's overhung by a cliff. And, you know, there might be a hundred gallons of water in that Tanaha. And when you find those things, the animals know where they are too. So you can follow animal tracks, but you don't want to aimlessly follow animal tracks, but every animal out there has to get water at some point. And so that's another way to kind of vector in on where water might be uh, out in the desert. We look for, green growth along rivers, anywhere that there's anything green along a dry stream bed, it's got to be getting water somehow. So that's a place you're going to go look for water. Um, you know, if you get to a point where you're looking at sand, but there's green growth, you can dig a seep hole and see if, if the water level's not too far down, it might collect in that seep hole. Um, and then, of course, in the winter, there's snow, which is its own whole thing. You know, there's wet snow and dry snow and uh, when you're melting water, it's better to start with melting snow. It's better to start with some water. It tends to uh, melt the snow more easily than if you just put snow in. You can actually burn snow. It's a strange taste if you've never had burned snow, but that's a thing as well. I don't know. That was a whole lot of talking, but that's kind of in a thumbnail the way I think about it. So, Evan, I got, I've got a question for you. This, yeah. What was that word again? Taha or? Oh, Tanaha. Tanaha. So is that like a, is that, That's, I don't know what that is. Yeah. So in, Explain in, in Spanish, me, it, it's in Spanish. It means tank in Spanish, oh, okay. but it's the colloquial, colloquial term for folks in the Southwest. Whenever there's a hollowed out basin of water 
that's holding water. And out in the desert mm. country, they're all over the place. I mean, there might be, you know, if it rained last week, there'll be Tanahas out there that are holding water in the middle of what otherwise seems to be a completely dry desert. Gotcha. So it's not just, you, you also mentioned pools of water on a, on a drainage of some sort. This is just where rainwater is collected over time sort of thing. Yes, the Tanahas are, and and typically they're in sandstone where the sandstone has been hollowed out um, over Mm. time. And some of them, I mean, it's these strange looking boreholes, like it looks like a bowl in sandstone Mm. um, that, I mean, there's one outside of Moab I know of that, like, you wouldn't even know it's up there. It's kind of up on a ridgeline. It must hold four or 500 gallons of water. Dang. And yeah yeah it just gets down nice. into a hole in the rock and um it's uh these boreholes and the other thing that's weird is uh, it, if they're really big like that one i wouldn't collect water from it without a rope because i think i'd get stuck and not be able to get back out mm. and you'll find in some of these you'll find dead lizards floating you know dead toads stuff like that because you know for the very same reason they tried to get water and had no way of getting back out of this kind of borehole thing down in the sandstone hmm very interesting. They're definitely cool when you find one. It gives mm-hmm. you this, you know, you're out in this completely seemingly bleak landscape, and here's this little source of life sitting right here. And maybe I'm just not understanding your words, too, but I, I saw you post because we were in your um, Hill People group, group the other day, and you mentioned this word seeps, that it's not too tr- too much difficulty to find a seep out there. What what do you mean by seep? I don't know if we have the same understanding well, of that word. So snow banks up high will last, it depends on the year, but into July usually, maybe even August. And it, again, it just depends on the year, how much snow there was the year before, how hot the summer was, but as that water melts, usually up there, it's all like crushed granite. Mm-hmm. And so the snow melt will filter down through crushed granite on the tops of these mountains. But then when the terrain gets a little bit less steep, there'll just be a little trickle of water coming out of the basin of that, of that slope that otherwise just is crushed granite because there's hmm. snow melt up at the very top of that basin. Okay. Okay, cool. And I think what you were talking about was a spot where um, it was exactly that, but uh, the seep was had to come out into an indentation. So elk tracks were the only place that there was actually exposed water because they were deep enough down into this kind of crushed granite mixture that the water filtering through the granite from above would collect because the elk track was like below the surface. Mm -hmm. And you could have also just dug and waited for it to fill up. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the basic, okay. the basic thing. Okay, cool. See, Matt, I don't know everything. Told you, it's it's great. I love it. <laughs> I love hearing about. I, I I love. I interview a lot of people too, and I love hearing about different places in the world and how different things happen. I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating world we live in. It is. It is. And <clears throat> the fact that we're able to identify where our shortcomings are in something like this and embrace it, I love it. Yeah, I think I think it's dangerous ground. You see a lot of folks that are, you know, masters of survival or experts or whatever, and there you'd have to be a sharp cookie and have a lot of travel time to know how to go from South America to the Rocky Mountains to Kentucky. 
I mean, we were having this discussion as it relates to tracking. There's a lot of tracking instruction, man tracking instruction that happens in arid areas where there's a lot of sand and not to call anybody out, but come to Kentucky and, and do that in leaf litter hoss. That's, it's not the same animal. It's not the same tracking in Kentucky is not tracking in Utah. I've taught in both places and it's, it's just not, and survival is not either. I mean, it's yep. all very, very different. You know, a point though, that I want to reinforce, and I think I said it two episodes ago that to me, the, the hallmark of a good woodsman is somebody who's always paying attention to where they are, always looking for those little le- lessons. Um, and, you know, they're, they don't think of it as the humdrum. Well, it looks like the last Valley, you know, I just, I was just in, I was actually thinking about this earlier today. Um, you know, Cornelius Nash, who's a great tracker, you know, decades of tracking experience. Right. And he was going to do a, a wounded warrior kind of thing, elk hunting, but he'd never tracked elk before. And, um, so he said, Evan, would you show me like what this looks like? What am I looking for? Where am I looking for tracks? And, the speed with which he picked up on the difference between a deer track and an elk track was just astonishing to me. Like, you know, I, I'd showed him two different tracks to differentiate. And the very next one, he said, Oh, Evan, that's, that's an elk track, isn't it? And it was a trick because it was an elk track smaller than a deer track, but he had like, he had picked up on the lesson. I mean, that's, that's a woodsman. I was, mm-hmm. and we should all endeavor to be so perceptive and so open to learning, you know, something in a new environment. Absolutely so we've located water what is the next step you want to tackle this one evan because i went crazy on that last that last podcast well i think you're about to tell us all that nothing works short of <laughs> I, 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 or bleach or something <laughs> yeah we can go there do we want to go there first well <laughs> Just Let piss me, everybody I, off because I mean I'm in the I'm in the mood I reckon it's real it's real though. Well, so okay, so <laughs> I've definitely been on trips where people got giardia and I did not, you know, without a doubt. Um, and I filtered water and they did not. So, uh, you know, one thing that we have to understand is that even water that's heavily giardia infested may only have a small handful of microorganisms per cubic foot of water. So you can drink a whole lot of untreated water and you're just playing Russian roulette. You know, you may or may not get it. So, you know, if we think of these as partial solutions, um, like, well, already I'm kind of ahead of the game because, you know, there's not that many, um, but then I'm gonna use a filter, the best filter I can. I've been using one for years. Uh, I keep finding uh, cartridges, ceramic cartridges to replace old ones, but it's a brand that hasn't even been made for years. So eventually I'm going to have to do something different. Um, But at any rate, that's in the mountains. The other huge thing is just the debris in the water. Um, In general, you're going to try to coarse filter your water um, by straining it, letting it settle something. I was on a trip up in Alaska where there's all this glacial silt. And it was a boat trip. So we would uh, get water out of the river in a five-gallon bucket, let it settle all day long, then dip water out of the top of the five-gallon bucket, strain it through a handkerchief, and then use the filter on it. 
and still we were having to clean the filter every quart of water. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess in general, you're going from coarse filtering to, to fine filtering. I'm fortunate. A lot of the places that I filter water, um, I can go two to three quarts before I got to clean the filter again. Um, I do not worry about purification in general, just because where I am, it's not a problem. Um, you know, we're just talking about mountain water. That's got some beaver dung in it and Giardia and stuff. Um, but any rate, that's, I guess, maybe the classic answer. And of course you can boil it. Boiling's pretty definitive. Uh, normally I've, I'm not messing with a fire or I don't have enough fuel that I want to bring my water to a boil. So rarely is that my solution. Uh, I think, uh, in more of a long-term living situation, that would probably be my primary solution uh, versus backpacking. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's all the pretty classic thing. And people have heard me talk poorly about like the squeeze filters. That's because frequently, like in the example of the seep, or maybe there's a trickle of water at the very bottom of a canyon, I got to pump the water up out of where it is. Like there's no way I could dip, you know, even two cups of water to to put through a squeeze filter. So I'm a fan of the pump filters just for extracting the water up through the filter. Uh, but I know in different locales, other things can be done. Heavy subject here, man. Um, so here's my perspective on it to add to what Evan has said. And and I would, number one, I would 100% make it clear. I agree with everything that Evan just said the big issue is are there contaminants in the water source where you're sourcing the water okay that's the big one let's not overlook what he just said where he's sourcing water it shouldn't be an issue because it's not and that's a good thing where he's sourcing water shouldn't be a whole lot of particularly viral contamination in water source if any at all and little bacterial contamination of the water source i think understanding the different contaminants is real critical bacterial viral chemical are the big ones so to take it a step further then most people understand the idea of bacteria well number one none of the things that we've talked about so far whether it's boiling or using a filter because filters and purifiers are two totally different devices they don't do things to kill anything, okay? Matter of fact, even the chemicals that you put in water like iodine or, or bleach or the backpacker droplets, which are basically a form of bleach, those don't kill anything. They basically make that contaminant sterile, which means it can't multiply in your gut. That's a huge misunderstanding. Nothing gets killed. Don't don't go around thinking, hey, I've killed the bacteria. You haven't. You've just made it sterile. It's still going into your gut. It's just not going to rapidly multiply in your gut at that point. Now, if we look at it from a filter perspective, here's what is out there so far that I'm willing to share right now because I am still neck deep in the middle of trying to figure out how to pass this information on. And I'm in the middle of my busy season, so I really haven't put much to it, to be quite frank with you. And I've got a lot more to do. I've got one more interview to do with a water quality control specialist at uh, the Division of Water in my state. And once that's done, then I'll, I'll move on. But filters, number one, do exactly what 
Evan just described, they filter out the sediment, whatever that is. And I would agree with Evan, the worst time I've ever had trying to get clean water was when I was in Alaska uh, with glacial runoff. It was terrible. I mean, I couldn't use, it was just, it was like the filter was useless. The contaminants that are in the water, depending upon which ones they are, bacterial or viral, cannot exist in an environment where water is coming to a rolling boil. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Those contaminants, can typically, bacterial contaminants, cannot exist in water a lot less than that. Matter of fact, we found out in Iraq and Afghanistan that you can basically put water in clear water bottles and sit them on top of your tank, sit them on top of your Bradley, sit them on top of your hooch, whatever, and it'll help make sterile some of the bacterial contaminants in the water. And this is a scientific study. It was done. It's real, real detailed. To take that to the next step is looking at these viral contaminants, which are much smaller. Viral contamination of water source is literally scientifically much smaller than bacterial contaminants of water. The issue there is that the way filters and purifiers are tested is they are tested in labs and they are tested in labs to meet ANSI standards. And when you meet ANSI standard, you can find the documentation on this. It's real easy to find if you just want to document ANSI stand, water standards for your filter of choice. Type it in. I'm not even going to say their names because I don't want to go there. Type in your filter of choice and you will find where they have been tested in a lab with water that comes out of a tap. Whatever the contaminant is, is puts in the water source. They run that through the filter. And then if it comes out to where they can legally, that's a really important word, legally say it's 99.9% .9 effective, then they move on with it. The reason it's 99.9% .9 effective, think about it, you all. They don't say they're 100% effective for a reason. What is that reason? Because some things will go through it. Now, if you're sourcing water the way Evan described, you're avoiding a lot of those contaminants altogether. And so you don't really have to worry about it as much. You double up with a filter then you're doing that much better because it does grab a bunch of them. And the reason when I say grab, the scientific name for it is the Van der Waal effect. Van der Waal was this super cool Dutch scientist who determined that these contaminants, when they go through a filter, it was particularly coal. When it would go through coal, it causes a vibration and the contaminants would connect to the coal and then the H2O molecules would pass through. They built ceramic filters, filters to basically imitate coal is what they were doing and what he was doing or, or what we've done with his research. And so when water passes through that ceramic filter, those contaminants get connected to the filter itself. And then the water comes out and you're solid. Okay. If you happen to get into a place that has a, a higher concentration of giardia, for example, where there's a lot of animal feces in the water for some reason, then you're, yeah, you're really, re you're putting two or three bullets in the gun for Russian roulette. So that's kind of my take on it at this point. The way you described it almost reminds me of uh, tourniquets with, oh, with, with, well, with filters that some controversy, controversy and then certain tourniquets. Yeah, we're not going to get into it. Make sure that it does this. Have a nice day. Yeah, I mean, it's to step into your world a little bit because because I don't know your world. I, I think I, I, I don't understand know it. it. Okay. 
it, it's it's like using tampons to plug yeah holes, man yeah <laughs> i mean it's there's just there's a lot of people that hang on to some really old bad information and it's just wrong and there's some really educated people that still hang on to some really bad information and that's okay and one of the reasons is that they're getting fairly decent water to begin with and so it shouldn't be an issue and if they filter it and it does anything at all, then they're again, doubling up, which is good. That reminds me of a a phrase Chuck Haggard say, says, and I'm going to absolutely murder it, but it's something along the lines of um, questionable tactics. How does it go? It's basically it's using technical or using uh, crappy tactics with positive outcomes. Yeah, that's, they shouldn't be reinforced. Yeah, I don't remember what that. Yeah, I'll try to find that phrase. I yeah, but it makes sense. It does. Um, You know it. So to take it up another step, then viral contamination of water source is going to almost necessarily require you to use some sort of chemical additive, some purifying agent, whether it's tablets or, or drops of iodine bleach. Um, the Aquamira tablets or whatever is what I carry. Aquamira is just a brand name. And the reason I carry those from a survivalist perspective, and I don't, I'm not a big fan of that word survivalist, but anyway, I'll use it, is I know that my bottle of water takes one tablet. And so under the stress of whatever a survival situation is, it's just stupid proof. And I have literally written on the tablets and on my Go bottle, hey, one tablet per this bottle. And so I don't have to, I don't have to do math under stress. For fortuitous outcomes, reinforce bad tactics. That's what it was. <laughs> That's a Chuck Haggard. That's a good one. And those tablets I carry as well. Uh, they're just not something I use regularly, but they're small and light way, way more so than, you know, my filter is. So like in a day pack where I maybe am not carrying a filter, don't expect to need to resupply for sure. I've got the tablets. I carry them in my kit bag, same reason. So that's definitely a good product that everybody should have some of. So what um, else with bodies of water? Or, or what about uh, clues looking at, assessing if you can the water before you gather it? Well, sometimes you said, yeah, um, you said animal feces specifically. Yeah. Let me, I, I just now thought about one thing too. That's another device. A lot of people use is these UV lights. Mm. It just hit me thinking about that. Those are for the most part useless. Um, and again, for those of you who have used them and they've worked well, you've probably got clean water, just like Evan was describing earlier. I mean, you've probably just gotten clean water. It's not an issue. We know that if there's contaminants that attach to any portion of sedimentation and you you move your UV light in your Nalgene bottle, for example, and move it around and it's on the backside of that sediment, then that UV light never hits that bacterial or viral contaminant. So it's just, it's just, they're negligible in their, their uh, likelihood of doing anything in the water. But this, I think this goes back to your next question was, what are some things to look for? I think it's difficult. And here's why it's difficult. You can't see these things. Number one, you can't see them. And there's a huge difference between a water being biologically clean 
and being clean enough for me and you to drink. So for years, and I, this is another thing that I made a mistake with early on in my understanding, because I had a, a an instructor that I trusted tell me this and, and, and I shouldn't have. So there certain salamanders exist in water and they're very sensitive creatures. And so they can exist in water that is very harmful to them. And that is true from a biological perspective, but that water could be, it could have considerable amounts of Giardia in it and it won't cause a problem for that salamander. I mean, this is one of the whole reasons I went through master naturalist training. Master naturalist training is everything from woody stem plants to herbaceous plants to geology, geography, terrain, archaeology, a little bit of anthropology, um, and everything that goes along with being in nature. And I came to that understanding with a professor that was my water quality instructor in master naturalist training that there's a huge difference between biologically clean water where you see a lot of good fish, you see a lot of salamanders that are very sensitive, that doesn't mean that you can just drink it up. That's that's That doesn't equate at all. So, Craig, is this a wives' tale? Um, what I've heard is that you're better off uh, getting water from still water rather than moving water because likely the Giardia has settled to the bottom in still water. I've heard this. I don't know if there's any truth to it whatsoever. No, that's not true. Okay. That's a, that's another one of those that's been passed around too much. And, and here's where the study came from that I'm understanding it, so that it gives some context to everybody that's listening. One of my professors in master naturalist training is basically turning strip mines here in Kentucky into savannas for elk. We have the largest elk herd in our state east of the Mississippi River. We've got a huge elk herd here now. We've been growing them here for 25 years. I was here when they, I was, me and my daughter were there when they released the first seven. It's really a fantastic conservation win for uh, our part of the world. But she's basically turning all the, and if you've ever seen what a strip mine looks like in Kentucky, West Virginia, Appalachia, it's just a, it's just a moonscape. And she did a considerable amount of study of water that was sitting in some of these strip mines. Some Because we have such a karst system, which is underground water flow through the limestone in Kentucky. We have a lot of underground water here. And she was real clear that that is not necessarily true, that water, uh, moving water would be the better choice, Evan, from her perspective. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's a term that's, is that a term that's familiar to you guys? Car system? Is that something kind of particular to us here? Evan, you ever, you ever use that word I, out there? I, I do know of it. I don't think we've okay. got any of that going on out here. Though. Okay. Yeah. It's like a lot of people know in Kentucky, there's Mammoth Cave, one of the largest cave systems in the world. Uh, that's a basically a car system. There's a lot of sinkholes in Western Kentucky. Like there's a spot in the Green River in, in far Western Kentucky where um, you can be trolling along in a, bass boat with your sonar looking for fish and all of a sudden the bottom drops out of the river because there's a sinkhole that's about a half a mile deep going down into the earth there's a lot of that that happens in kentucky where water goes down under the earth and then it pops up somewhere else heck it might be 10 miles away and that's where water goes through the limestone features uh here particularly in central kentucky and then just pops up somewhere else it's a real interesting uh uh 
It's, it's an interesting geology, geological feature. One way that I was in class with a lady that was teaching a class on water and how it travels. And I can't remember, I was interviewed somewhere else and I, and forgive me if I told this the last time, but she put these colored pellets in a Walmart parking lot here in our small town, Winchester. And about three miles away was where the, she knew that the water that was running off that parking lot came out of the ground in a, in a nature preserve here in our county. And she, with all these school kids and me and a few other educa uh, environmental educators, we were there, put the pellets into the water. They were purple. And then we got on a bus and we drove down there. And about an hour later, the purple water came out in the creek. And we had driven, you know, it takes about 20 minutes to get down there. And it was a really good lesson for everybody there, including myself, just to see how water will travel. So, you know, you can think about all the oil, all the, you know, chemical contaminants in, that are in a Walmart parking lot that are just running into that water source that looks entirely clean. And that's that's a real problem for us in this part of the world and and I'm sure others as well. You know, just an anecdote along those lines, and I don't remember where I heard this story, but it was somewhere that they had been drinking for years, like maybe two generations from a, a spring and mm -hmm. never had any trouble with it. And there came a year where everybody got sick and they figured out that three or four miles away, something had been built. And, you know, what was known as a good spring was not a good spring. And I mean, with the rapidness that the world's changing, you know, that's, that's a good point about when you're trying to evaluate water is safe or not, boy, there's just very few guarantees unless, I mean, here, I, I know where the water cycle is. Like there's the snow. I can watch it filtering down through the mountains. I can see where it comes out in a Creek and, you know, unless there's beaver dams upstream, you know, that's, that's really all that's going to be there. But man, any of these other areas, that's a great, great point, Craig. Yeah, there's a there's a my family or my family, uh, my wife and daughter, we went up to a natural area here. It's referred to as Red River Gorge. And there's there's at least one real famous pipe that comes out of the side of a hill that a lot of people stop. It's the greatest water you've ever seen and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. And and it, the water that comes out of that pipe comes out of a, a pool of water that was created to do that right above it. And it's it's been tested. I mean, water, Kentucky, because it has the water, we have a very fantastic division of water in Kentucky and for uh, government that goes out and studies this and tests the water and it tests that water and it's dirty on a very regular basis, meaning it has human feces in it because there's so many people that live in the area and water, you know, a lot of them have straight pipes in the creeks and stuff. And that we've tried to eliminate that. And most of that's been eliminated, but there's always, you know, squatters that just move into an empty, broken down house and they start, you know, just dumping their feces out in the middle of nowhere. And so that stuff collects in those underground water car systems and travels wherever it wants to. And not to get political at all, but but um, this is this is a reason some entities have problem with what we've heard called fracking. I used to work for a natural gas utility as well, and we f we fracked on a regular basis because what happens is natural gas, for example, will get hung up in those rocks too. And if you cracked it, which is fracking it, basically just drop dynamite down in a hole and frack and create a huge crack, then that gas would seep through and come to the area you're wanting it to. Water does the same thing. 
And so if there's an earthquake, for example, it might be that water that was 50 miles away starts coming up somewhere else. And so that, that can be a very significant issue. I was in a cave probably 10 years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago where there was a water runoff come, you know, a cave's basically created by water. Right. And so there was water coming out of this cave, beautiful, serene Kentucky cave opening, beautiful, what looks like clear water. And I spelunked back into this cave and there was a straight pipe coming out of the bottom of a, of a, um, uh, chemical runoff for an oil well that they had been pumping these contaminants that they were getting out of this oil well, they would pump them over into this container basin. And that was coming right down into the cave. I mean, a straight pipe and they knew it. They just didn't care, you know, because back then, whenever that was dug, there was maybe somebody not looking at it and nobody owned that land. And it was just, just regularly contaminating that water source with chemical contaminants. It's just frustrating. Sure, that wasn't Flint, Michigan. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it was Kentucky, but yeah. Interesting. That's where I mean, I, you know, we we talk about government intervention and stuff, and I'd prefer the government stay out as much. But I st I would like to whip that boy's ass. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, that would be a good way of fixing that problem. I guess he shouldn't have been doing that. And that might be a better intervention than, than other means. So how well versed would you guys be as far as uh, water storage and preparation? Um, what do you mean for like disaster at home? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're uh, water lines are cut. There's no water for some reason, or it's contaminated. And we need to be more, we need to be using what we have. Are you guys well, well enough first to discuss uh, water storage and preparation sure. and durations that you can, you can hold on to that stuff and how to, how to maintain it? Sure. We can discuss it at some point. I'm sure. I mean, to some degree, the yeah. first thing yeah, that comes ahead. to, the first thing that comes to mind to me, and then Evan, you jump in there. Cause I've been talking for a while is is I like to tell people, okay, you've been notified there's a boil water advisory or something in your neighborhood. Go out there and immediately shut the valve off at your road because it's unlikely that the water's already made it into the pipes of your house. And so all the water that's in your house is probably clean. And so you've got a certain amount of water already from a survival perspective, disaster preparedness that you can utilize. You can drain the water out of your hot water heater depending on if you have one, if you, because a lot of people go straight gas pipe and then heat it as it goes in now. But if you still have a gas water heater, then you've got a, a fair amount of water there. Um, you don't need water to flush your toilets. That's clean. So you can gather water like a lot of people. And this is kind of the steps that I'm taking is to just have water that's collected from rainwater. You can just dump a bucket into the back of the toilet and flush feces away. Uh, because again, I, whenever we talk about water, I like to talk about hygiene and hygiene is going to be critical. If you, if what I tell people to test yourself and see if you're ready at your house, turn your water and your electric off for a week and then start taking notes on what happens and what doesn't work. And the first thing that's going to come to mind after day one is there's a bunch of crap in your toilets. It's backed up and there's nowhere for it to go. So that's one way to start flushing that and get it out of your house. Usually we take a poop and then we flush it and it's gone. We don't, 
consider it anymore. We should still consider it, but we don't, we think it's gone. It's not, it's just gone somewhere else. And, um, and I think we need to make sure that we understand at least that from the beginner's perspective of some ways to get some water at your house and then, and then store it as well. Evan, you jump in there. Sorry, I'm running off here. Well, you probably know more than I do about this subject. Um, so I just, um, have some bleach stored and, you know, I have the FEMA guidelines printed out as far as how much bleach per part of water. And, and that's kind of the plan. Um, I do have, you know, and this is a relatively easy thing to do. It's worth doing in the West. I have rain barrels, um, you know, at two different corners of the house. I got a lot of surface area that I collect rainwater. Um, and, but the thing is, if you don't start with those barrels full, you might as well fill them up with a garden hose. So you've got some water stored if you live out here in the arid west. Um, and then I do have a little water buffalo parked outside the house with another 150 gallons in it. So I guess I'd say if you live out here, you know, water's pretty doggone critical and it's worth just having some barrels sitting around. Um, and what, what we've been able to do locally here is get... Uh, basically barrels that bleach uh, for swimming pools comes in and those barrels are free or cheap. Um, and you can get spigot kits on Amazon to put a spigot in the very bottom of those barrels. And, you know, because it has bleach in it, which you're going to add anyway, as long as you clean them out really well, well, there's your starting point for water that's going to be relatively clean. And it's, I mean, it takes some time, but it's a, a cheap and relatively easy way to store a reasonable amount of water ahead of time, which, you know, ahead of time is better than hoping that the however many gallons are in your water heater are going to tide you over until the next time. So that's a great solution. I think it's probably good for people to understand if you, it, let's say, for example, you take a cup of water and you set it up on your kitchen counter and just let it sit there. How long is that water good for? A few days, more than likely. So if you have something like, for example, water from your tap that's sealed, then it, it should be much longer. It should be a few months, six months or so. And if you get purified water or you purify it, just like Evan described, you purify it yourself with bleach and it's sealed, then that's going to last two years easy. But the beautiful thing is if you have a system set up where rainwater is constantly coming into that rain barrel and then it's overflowing and running out or you're catching it in another one so that you're constantly refilling with water and putting bleach there on a regular basis, then you just got a continuous water source if, 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 if you have rain, which a lot of places don't. So I think if you don't, if you're in a places like Evan is describing, then you're going to have to figure out a way to have food grade containers of some sort that you're storing water in. Have to. And again, if it's it's if it's sealed, then it's going to last two years if it's purified. The big thing is not letting sunlight get to it. If there's any sort of biological agent in there and it can grow and sunlight gets to it, it'll make it grow. Right. So stored in the common adage of cool, dry place. Any guys, links to water storage? Barrels yeah. Do you guys have any recommendations for those barrels? Man, we just, I just picked up some more this week from hmm. one of our students. Um, so like one big one that I have on 
I don't want to go too far into that, but one one big one that I have on a another location other than my house is Coca-Cola has food grade like huge what I'm guessing Evan's calling a water buffalo, just basically something that it holds, you know, several hundred gallons of Coke. <laughs> and then they do whatever they do with Coke. You can get those and clean them out pretty easily and then and let water run into them from the rain or fill it up with a hose and then have it purified and then seal it off and it's good to go. We have a place nearby our town called Lexington Container Company that ships all over the world. And I'm dare to say that there's Rural Kings or Tractor Supplies. And those are two local names to me. You all probably have different ones for agricultural sources where agriculture folks, farming folks get their stuff. You can usually get those at those types of places. If they don't have them, they'll probably know where to get some. Yeah, I think the key, you know, is something that's going to come to your town and then essentially be a byproduct or something else. If you can find a source like that, and Coca-Cola is a good example, uh, if you can find a source like that, they're more looking to get off, off their hands than anything. Yeah. You know, I'll bet if Tractor Supply had a water barrel, it would be 50 bucks. And I'm talking like five or 10 bucks per 50 gallon drum is kind of the price that we're finding here mm. locally. And I guess the other thing I should mention is we do have a river flowing right through town and I've got a bicycle with a good trailer on it. And that's kind of plan C. I know where to go get water and I know how to boil it and let the sediment settle and everything else. So that's long-term, even a further plan. I don't think, I mean, it's not a bad idea for folks if you've never done this to, if the only mapping software you know how to use is Google Maps or some variation of it, use it. Take a look at where you live and find where the nearest water source is to you. If you've never done that, you should. You should do that today. <laughs> Everybody should know where the nearest pond, creek, river is to their location. Because whether it's at Plan C or D or whatever, Pace Plan, you know, primary alternate contingency and emergency, it might be the emergency uh, water source for you, but man, you better know where that is. Well, something to consider that and to reinforce the concept is, okay, let's say you're where you live, the city, the town, the whatever has this water issue. Who's going to be going to those alternate water sources? Possibly right. everyone. So what are your, yeah, what are your B plans and what are, what are other areas you can go to? One day I can tell you right now, your typical person's going to go to the grocery store because they're stupid. And they think that food is more important than water. I, I think water is the key to disaster readiness. And I've grown really fond of this word because it's been used a lot in some of the work that I'm doing with some other folks. Uh, resiliency, uh, disaster resiliency. How long can you last? How long can you stay resilient? And I think the key for me and all of us really is water. Um Water is a very significant part of it. food. Everybody knows how to store food for the most part. Everybody has an understanding of basic mountain house meals and MREs and stuff that goes along with it. But, but water, I don't think people have a grasp of. I think people like Evan that live in a place where it's arid and water is just not a given is very different for people like me that water is a given. And we just don't know that it's not a given. We just think it is. Karen just brought up something 
that I think is a good observation. And so basic, I'll just read what she, what she just said in chat. Uh, we flood a lot here and clean water for drinking and hygiene becomes an issue quickly. Yeah. Just because there may be a lot of water doesn't mean it's necessarily usable. And so people may not think about that. Yeah. Evan and I trained some guys that responded to the floods in, I guess it was Houston a few years ago. And the biggest problem with the guys that responded there, I mean, these are the, some of the first boots on the ground for assistance were, was that food, water was everywhere and every bit of it was nasty. It smelled bad. It looked bad. And their typical ways of filtering, let's say we run it through a Sawyer squeeze or something that wasn't, that's just not enough. It's not even close to being enough. So you got to have some, in my mind, boiling capacity, filtration, purification. And then because a lot of times purifying agents make it taste bad, then I would run it through a filter again and make it more palatable in, in a situation like Karen's describing there. Do you know Karen, Matt? She's a friend of mine too. I know Karen really well. She's a good gal. But she, also, she's, a, she's a gun nerd. Oh, gotcha. And then also though, considering that, especially like in flood areas, that also winds up being a, that's a contaminant and it spreads and it gets everywhere. Yeah. In Houston, the issue was feces and, and dead yeah. animals. There were dead cattle everywhere down there. Now, if mean, it were it just, Detroit, it would be dead people. Yeah, exactly. Or Chicago. Yeah. Do we have more on water or should we take a, go from where we're at and just go parallel to food? I don't have anything more. Do you, Evan, on water? I, I think we've hit it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I would say that we have. So we've been talking about some water storage stuff. One of the things that I wanted to discuss, and this is we're just going to go parallel, and then we'll backtrack towards more uh, out and about living off of land food. Food storage, MREs, Mountain House, stuff like that. The, uh, the idea that they don't last forever, despite what some people may think. And the the conditions where they're stored definitely plays a part in how nutritious they are and how good they may keep. What are your guys' experience with that? Absolutely. Number one, any type of meal that you buy, MRE, mountain house, uh, backpacker meals, hiker's pantry, whatever it is that you get, you've got to understand that there is a certain amount of quality nutrition after X amount of time. And every one of them is different. It's worthy of looking at how long their shelf life is because they will start to break down. And so I think that's worthy of everybody's inspection when they're looking at these things and knowing that stuff's not going to last forever. Uh, I think that would be number one. And then number two, don't feel like you've got to have prepackaged meals either. I think we, we look at the military MRE and go, you know, that's a standard, if you will, of way to feed ourselves under stress. And it's not. Number one, those things are heavy as frick. They're, they're, they're not easy to carry a lot of calories around, for one. And for disaster readiness, disaster resiliency, it might be best. I mean, one way that I've done it is just get buckets of rice, beans, and stuff of that nature. You know, the simple way that I've done is get food grade buckets that are sealable, put the rice or the beans in the buckets, put a tea candle in there, seal it up. The tea candle eats all the oxygen that's in the bucket, and then it's very adequately sealed. 
for food. And so that lasts an extremely long time. I've got some that I've checked on after a decade or more and they're good to go. I've never heard the, the, the uh, candle method. That's cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Basically it doesn't burn a hole in it because it's just a yeah. small tea candle. It doesn't create a lot of heat, but it's enough to, to starve, a, starve the bucket of oxygen. Cause it, you know, fire needs oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Growing, growing up in an LDS family, preparedness, all that kind of stuff is big and everything's, uh, let's see here. There's trips to the cannery and then there's vacuum sealed everything and <laughs> candle. That's just cool. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. I like it. It's, it's pretty simple. Anybody can do that. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a good way of sealing large amounts of food. It's not the most palatable beans and rice, but man, beans and rice will get you through. Uh, yep. It has a lot of nutrition in it if you store the right stuff. And another thing to add to that, and at least have it available that I'm a big fan of, is adding, if you have that around, adding some sort of um, salt or whatever minerals or, or whatever things that you would like to add to it to help it give it taste. Because eating rice and beans gets old. But if you've got some, some sort of this, you got red eyed hog over here spice you got slap your mama spice over here you got whatever spice you got then you can change up that meal pretty quick like yeah because that's going to get old in yeah. a hurry one of the cool concepts that i don't even remember where i was discussing this but basically the idea was if we're locked not locked down but if we're if we're going to be at our house and we need to maintain ourselves and supply chains are gone we still have we still have all of our other food that we can mix in and we can incorporate. It's not like we are only eating MREs. There might be a point where that's going to be the case or whatever package, whatever we have for our storage. But yeah, if, if, we, if we're maintaining good supplies of like what you just said, seasonings, salts and things like that, these mm -hmm. are things. And also one of the things that I, I think is a good idea is when I purchase things to, to in a permanent marker, mark on it, what the date is that I purchased it. Recalls mm -hmm. happen. Kind of sucks to find out that sure. something I had went bad. But uh, yeah, so let's see here. We're a family of four here. If we have to eat some of our storage, we can incorporate the stuff that we already have. And uh, that will make things, that can make things more palatable, especially when you have a picky sure. two-year-old who's very, he's worse than I am with food. And, and, I mean, that's a serious concern. I, I I don't want people to think I'm I'm being silly when I suggest that type of stuff. I think that's no. critical for you. You you fight like you train, and most of us don't sit around eating rice and beans or Mountain House meals for extended periods of time or MREs for that matter. I mean, I've known a bunch of folks that were in Iraq one that you know there was one crew that I helped train that were they were in Bradley's for six months in the desert and they were just eating MREs for six months and that. I mean, they they talked regularly about how that negatively affected their bodies, their their energy, their skin, their vision and everything. You just don't want to do that if you don't have to. And so adding something up, even as simple as that, is a huge morale boost, which is going to be incredibly beneficial to a family, for example. Um, those of us that have embraced the suck at yeah. lengthy periods of time, you know, we're still going to need that too. I don't care what anybody says. It sucks. Yeah. But I'll also add that hunger is the best seasoning in the world. Yes. Without a doubt. Uh, I've been there. And so when you're hungry, you'll eat whatever. 
I was just having this conversation with my dad last night and we were talking about MREs were the, they were the best tasting thing he'd ever eaten when he was in Marine boot camp. Right. Right. Yeah. But that being said, right now we have an opportunity to figure out the, the different things to, to stock up on. So what I wound up doing a couple of years ago was I went to the local sporting goods place bought a couple different types of mountain house, brought them home. And then we sampled them for some reason. My wife didn't want to participate. She said, if, if we're starving, I'll eat whatever. Okay. Might as well make it more pleasant. So my daughter and I tried all these different uh, mountain house things and we figured out, we really like this one. We really liked, actually, we pretty much like all of them, but uh, we really figured out, okay, these are really good. We these are the, these are the ones we like more. And uh, it kind of helped us figure out what to stock up on. But this was, sure. this was planning ahead and this isn't, okay, I bought a case of whatever. I've never touched it. Don't know if it's even palatable in, in those kinds of situations. I think I want to have everything as comfortable and everything as, as pleasant as possible. I don't want to be eating bread and water for the rest <laughs> of my life. I, I'd like to have some, some variety, some flavor. Evan. Well, so First of all, I'll say rice and beans are definitely your best bang for your buck. And I've done the same thing over the years just because it's cost effective. But if you really start getting very far down this um, rabbit hole, I think it becomes apparent um, pretty quickly that you need to change how you source food in general. Uh, you need to start thinking the way people did, you know, let's go back 50, 80 years to when people were uh, living on farms and they stockpiled for a year and they went deep and they rotated their stores. And is your meat plan going down to the grocery store or is it, you know, your LDS neighbor who raises three beeves and you get in the habit of splitting them with them. And so you've got hundreds of pounds of meat in the freezer and you have a way to keep the freezer cold. So, and, you know, I wish I was a gardener. I wish somebody in my family was a gardener. But if you have somebody who has the time and effort to get into gardening, most suburban homes have enough real estate to raise a decent truck garden. So if you're really serious about this, you know, you're going to start developing those alternate sources of food. And uh, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about offsite locations just like Craig's not, but you know, if you're really serious about this, you're starting to plan about how you're going to source food on a perpetual basis, you know, somewhere that you have the water to make it happen and, you know, the whole ecosystem to make it happen. And, you know, on the subject of waste disposal that Craig raised, which is a big deal, uh, you need to consider uh, composting toilets, specifically urine separating composting toilets, because that is a elegant solution to a big problem. Um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's a couple of things I'll throw out there. I, you know, it's, I, I get it. We're all busy. We live in the modern world. Let's just buy the problem away. Let's just buy enough, you know, food to put on the shelf, but you know, that's a one-year solution, a two-year solution. I don't know. After two years, you've still got to be sourcing food locally somehow. So if you develop your own mini supply chain right now, to the extent that you can, you are so far ahead of the game. Plus probably you're eating healthier as well. Mm -hmm. That's a really so good that's, point too. 
I, I'm not, you know, I'm not there. I'd love to be there, but I would encourage everybody to head that direction if they're at all serious about this, this subject. Well, and I think what you just said also about having the garden that goes into what we were talking about. Okay. We're going to mix, we're going to mix together what we have and parts of that garden can keep things fresh and keep things better for us. Just like you just said, and it just makes sense. It just takes effort and time. Yeah. And it slows your life down and you're not going to be living the same way, but maybe it's a better way to live anyhow. And it it might be, yeah, it might add something to your life that, that you're, uh, it's lacking. Yeah. I can't can't agree with that anymore than what you all just said. I love that. There's some, there's some uh, incredible value in slowing down your food sources, meaning that garden. I'm telling you when, when that, when that first tomato comes off the plant that you've babied and you've been watching it for, you know, weeks, if not a couple months, that is the best tomato in the world, man. And so you get a tomato from the grocery store and and it tastes a little, eh, just toss it. No, no, you don't, you don't toss anything when you've spent weeks, if not months growing it. And I think there's value in that. And then, and I could see just adding that, adding one tomato to a meal, even a meal for four. It's yeah. You're, you're adding a, a, a a different flavor. One of the greatest lessons we homeschooled our children, one of the greatest lessons they ever got was there was a lady that we went to church with that they knew that we knew. And my wife would take my kids out there to just sit and listen to her talk and tell stories. Okay. And this is a lady that when she died, I think she was 108 or something. I mean, she was considerably old and she talked about several times for Christmas, she would get an orange and it was the highlight of her year to get a orange because Somebody would come by on horseback and ride through town and they had, you know, a couple of sacks of oranges and they would give an orange to all the kids in town. And that was such a foreign concept to my children. Right. But to her, she could still remember those days. And I think there's value not only in considering that for all of us and thinking how valuable that that one orange or that one tomato or that one stalk of corn that we've painstakingly grown is is important it's just critical i think i heard stories similar to that growing up yeah i'm sure i mean it was just it was that age i mean me and you were probably close the same age i mean it's just it's uh yeah it's just life man yeah i just we've advanced about it yeah we've advanced too much ways too much but we've lost so much and we've devolved in a lot of ways too yeah so one thing that you know, I got to throw out there in case there's anybody listening who thinks that the answer is they're going to just go out and hunt to get their meat. Yeah. Craig, you start laughing. So I everyone. Start laughing. Well, yeah. Until you've hunted, you don't even get what that reality looks like. You know, it, your hunt plan better be a feeder in your backyard that everything's already accustomed to coming to. And you, you know, something else I always say, anything from, a fishing standpoint or a hunting standpoint that's illegal, it's illegal because it works. So, right. you know, if you think you want to secure meat, look at what's illegal right now, because that's going to be your best plan if you really need to secure it. But neighbors, you know, I, well, neighbor's dog, you know, all that. Oh, no, no, uh, I mean, neighbors. 
<laughs> I taught a class uh, years ago. It's like chicken. I, I taught a class in Lexington, Kentucky, which is a moderately sized city, a lot bigger than where I live. And I, one of the, I mean, I learned a very valuable lesson about teaching at a public library <laughs> because my suggestion was get a 22 rifle because cats are plentiful and you'll have plenty to eat in your neighborhood for a while. And people lost their minds because there's so much more work involved because they're small. Oh, wait, no, that's not what they're <laughs> upset, upset about. It was, it was very problematic and, and it was obvious to me. And, and we talked about it earlier on. I've been hungry. I've haven't been hungry the way people in third world countries have been hungry, but I didn't eat for three weeks that second time I went out. And I'm telling you, man, <laughs> you eat whatever. Whatever comes across your plate in that situation, cat or dog or whatever. It tastes well, cat tastes like cat, just so you know. If anybody's wondering, and dog tastes just like a dog if you're wondering. So if that makes me an enemy of yours, then you've never been hungry like I have been. Well there may be a point where you may be mixing all your condiments together because there is no food and that is your right. meal. Right. Been there. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that's one of the worst things that a lot of these um, survival shows, they focus on food gathering, right? And I mean, the first thing I'll say is, you know, if you're going to just sit in one place, you don't need to spend energy going around gathering food. In any kind of survival situation, most anywhere in the continental United States, you really don't need to be gathering food in a survival situation. Point A and point B is, it's just really, really hard. So if that's your plan A, it's a bad plan. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something we can prepare for now. Now. Right. And it doesn't take, it does take time. It does take money and it takes time to gather it. Unless you dump a lot of money, go to Sam's and get a pallet of something. Right. Who knows how long that pallet's going to last. Yeah. I think in the survival community is, you know, these are words that, you know, everybody plays with, but in the survival community in general, people love hacks. You know, this is the same people that carry wasp spray as a self-defense tool. I mean, it's the dumbest thing that you can ever imagine because they love coming up with alternate ways of doing things where there was a much better solution before that was probably cheaper. Yeah. And what you're describing right now is exactly that. Yeah. We can hack our way and try to attempt to hunt and fish and all that cool stuff. But really, the better thing to do is to start storing food right now. The best time to start doing preparedness supplies was probably 20 years ago. And the second yeah. best time is now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, oh my gosh, start storing some food. Even if it is beans and rice with a tea candle or MRA, just store something. Figure out a place to keep it. So my my pattern of behavior was with every paycheck, spend 50 to hundred dollars on hmm. just that I'd go and get some mountain house. I'd get some other stuff. And with every check that goes, that goes away. And uh, awesome. it, it, it's, it's definitely reassuring now it's been a while and I have enough that we, 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 we can survive more than a day, mm -hmm. but if you also it, taking a step back, if we think about it, if you look at your cupboard right now, how, how well off are you? If you couldn't go to the store for a week, how long can you survive? Hopefully you'll be okay. Um, again, bringing up that whole LES thing again, th this was something pound preparedness was pounded into our heads 
Mm-hmm. And I have friends locally who have awesome, um, their, their, their means of supply is absolutely awesome. Basically when they go to the store, whatever they're buying, they're buying essentially doubles. And the second one goes to the back. The really smart ones take both of their products, store it in the back and take whatever's in the front of the, uh, of the, of the stack. There are different, there are awesome tricks to this and uh, it just takes effort and it takes organization. It takes time. I'm 53. And when my wife and I first got married, we would visit her grandparents who had lived through the depression. Right. And every time we would leave their house, we would leave with four or five grocery bags full of canned goods and dried goods and what have you. And that was their method of uh, restocking. It would, it was not like they were trying to get rid of what they were storing. They were restocking and resupplying. They would give us that. And we were newly married and, and poor as heck. And so we would eat it and we didn't have the money to store much then. And then they would restock and we'd go back and we'd every time we visited with them, they would give us, you know, grocery bags. And that's, that's a pretty good way of doing it now. If you can find a way, even if it's, even if it's donating some goods to uh, an entity that you like to donate, you can help other people out by donating food to them. And then you, you know, you're checking your stock and resupplying and, or eating it yourself. It, it just, you do whatever suits you, but, but um, doing that is a, is a really good thing to be doing. Heck yeah. So what you just said also about eating, that also applies to those MREs. Again, they're not going to last forever. There's a good possibility the ones that you have on your shelves, they might be ready to be eaten because they're not going to do you any good. And it's time to do replenishment. But to me, it makes zero sense to take something that I have, some of my storage or whatever, and chuck it. Why am I not just eating it? Why am I not just getting used to what it is, knowing what it is, using its value, um, and then just just do replenishment? Um, Karen just had another good. Yeah. Just read that up and tell us what it says in a minute. Yeah, Karen has another good one. Uh, I'll add this room real quick before you do that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think what you hit on is there. there's another side of this that I think is worthy of our inspection and our consideration. And that is, I think we have this idea because of this stupid zombie crap that the people that are going to be coming to take our stuff are zombies and we shoot them in the head and that's cool and that's sexy because TV shows do all that. When in reality, it's going to be that eight-year-old girl from down the street. Are you going to turn that child away in a tornado situation when her parents and her house are dead and they're gone? No, you're not going to. I don't think most of us wouldn't. So one thing that I do that will help me with that is right now I regularly when I'm rotating stock like that, I'll give it to people that I care about. Mm. Sometimes I give it to neighbors so that I don't feel guilty later on down the road when I have to turn them away and you have to shoot them. Yeah. I mean, what, whatever your choice (laughs) is on how you handle that situation, I'm not telling people to do that, but it's, and then, you know, yeah, (laughs) come on, Matt. (laughs) Evan, jump in here and save me from this guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Long pig. Is that what you're saying? You right. like long like pig? chicken. Oh my gosh. It tastes like long pig. Whatever mercy. Go ahead. What was Karen saying? So we can- Oh, 
Uh, on food storage at home, think about storing your staples in smaller containers, bags, what have you. I know people that have five gallon drums of rice, one mealworm infestation, and the whole drum is spilled. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although mealworms are pretty tasty. They taste just like mealworms. They're a whole lot better than long pig. I can tell you that. Just like cat tastes like cat. <laughs> Craig is fattening up his neighbors for later, Nick said. Yep. Oh my gosh, y'all are disgusting. Mm-hmm. Isn't it great? Well, you, you know, so if we're going to go sideways into all of this, <laughs> you know, Craig, you already know this. Those neighbors are your network. Those yeah. are the people you need. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, they're... <laughs> If things get rough, humans don't survive as, as lone actors. That's no. just not the reality of the That's world. Right. So, you know, if it, again, if you're serious about this, who are your friends? Who's in your group? Who is your family? Really? Who's in your community? Really? And how deeply are you connected to them already? Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely critical to know who your neighbors are. And I mean, Measure, I mean, and you should measure them up too. know who has what capabilities and who yes. doesn't have capabilities. And if it's somebody you can work with and help them, help them get those capabilities. You know, there was a, there, I had a neighbor and I looked out a window across the way and I seen this guy in black hoodie and uh, had a hoodie up and black pants and he was getting into my neighbor's van. He has a work van and I went out there to address him and talk to this individual that I'd thought was a bad actor and it ended up being my neighbor but he had never seen me in the way that i addressed him in that particular instance he didn't know that that was something i was capable of and uh it led to a fortunately very very fortunate led to a great conversation about security and safety in the home with firearms and a lot of things like that and had i not been looking out for my neighbor and again, fortunately, he was open. He, he didn't get mad at me for coming and trying to provide security for his van. Um, that turned out really well. And we've been great neighbors ever since. You know, look for ways to do that sort of. I'm not saying look for ways to do what I just described, but look for ways to move your neighbor's garbage can or help them. You know, back in the day, it was always moving their cattle back for them. And, and, and when they're building a fence, help them build the fence. Not only are you legally li liable for it, but... Help them. Come on. If they're raising a barn, go help them put up the barn. Whatever. I mean, those kind of things go a long way when disaster strikes. And it's a shame as a active police officer responding to various calls, the inability for neighbors to talk to each other is sad. Their music mm -hmm. is too loud. Their kids are loud. Their dog's barking. It takes no effort just to go and just talk to them and just say, hey, or give them a sure. call. Don't have the cops do it because that actually makes that makes you a look. Yeah, it makes you look weak and it pisses them off because, well, why didn't they just tell me? Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's the, the feedback I get. And I said, I'm, I'm, yeah, this is this is why I'm here. You're loud. Right. right. Hey, Evan, should we add Scott? Scott Hill, is he on? Yeah. No, the, actually, yeah. the question is, does Scott want to join? I don't know what he's doing right now. <laughs> he's not just sitting here in my house. I can tell you that. But he could be. He could be. Yeah. I'll Scott, bet he has to zoom all the time. Scott, if you want to jump on chat and let me know, or get me on Facebook, if you want to jump on, 
That will take zero effort to uh, add you to the panel. Yeah, and because because of the audience that we've got, Karen made a good another good statement here. Karen's a good gal. She's quite frankly, um, oh yeah, I'll say this: she's a person to listen to regarding the subject too. Is uh, she said if if all you have is guns and ammo, I can't use you. Well, I'm out. Considering that, considering in, in all seriousness, considering this audience, that is really important. Yeah, there's a lot to survival other than just the safety and security of who it is and what it is that you're all, you are. There's a lot more to it. Although that's a critical, I believe that's a critical component. And obviously by some of the things I've said tonight, I believe in it, but it's not the end all to beat all, which a lot of people think that it is. Well, and if we think about just our daily goings on, how often do I need to shoot someone? Not yet. And I'm the guy that right. responds to stuff. Right. And just like what you said also about the 22 and, and yeah, it wasn't taken well. Yeah. That 22 might be a better option than pretty much everything that I have behind me. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's absolutely value in safety and security too. I think that's a critical component. And we've talked about it. I think in the first time we got together, we were talking about medical, you know, you're, you're more than likely to save somebody with a tourniquet at a car wreck than you are with in a gunfight. Yep. And so why not go ahead and get involved in medical training so that you have the ability to, I mean, slap a tourniquet on somebody. The last thing that I, I that I want to see happen is me and my wife being a, uh, a car wreck. And one of us sit there and look at each other and bleed to death because we don't know how to put a tourniquet on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's more likely than me and her getting in a gunfight. And, and that's, there's the whole pro there's the whole, uh, stop the bleed. And mm -hmm. it's, it's to stop preventable death. It is absolutely preventable. Sure. And that kind of goes along with everything that we've been discussing. All these problems are preventable with, sure. with a combination of training, knowledge, and preparedness. Absolutely. Hey, Scott, are you on? I see his microphone's muted. Yeah. yeah. So in your guys' experience with MREs, and I guess also this would count for uh, mountain house and stuff like that. My understanding is cool, dry place. Otherwise they deteriorate or not deteriorate, but yeah, they, their value in uh, nutritional value decreases greatly. Do they eventually actually do go bad or do they just turn into rocks? Well, there's two different ones that you're talking about there. Yeah. And freeze dried. And, yeah. yeah. The freeze dried stuff will last longer than MRE. Yeah. The MRE 50 years. Loses. It just, it really depends on the manufacturer. And I think we, we have this mindset now too. This is something to be aware of, of MREs are the ones that are, you know, made by the U S military. They're not, they're made by a contractor. Yep. And that is the lowest bidding contractor, like everything. Military grade is great, right? No, military grade uh, is the lowest bidder. And so sometimes that's great equipment and sometimes it's not. And so who makes MREs bounces around a lot. And a lot of the companies that have made MREs for the Department of Defense may have lost that contract. And now they're making them for civilians yeah. and get in the civilian market. So there's a lot of stuff available out there. 
a whole lot of stuff available. And it's, I mean, you could, you could do a lot of research on different MREs and which ones that you find more palatable, which ones are last longer. And so it's not just a, just the ones in the brown package that have, you know, 3000 calories in them. Like Karen said earlier, there's a lot of different ones out there that offer some of them are 1500, but they're called MREs too. And some of them are as much like I got some Australian MREs that had like 8,000 calories in them or something like that, but they were intended to be a couple of days. I mean, you grab one and you're good for two to three days. That was their intent with the ones that they packaged. So it's, it's worthy of your investigation and research to look into the different ones available. Has there been any way to determine manufacture? Cause I I've inspect them and I can't tell manufacture times, dates or expirations. Or is it purely off of a code and a uh, and a color of the packaging? That I don't have an answer for, Matt. Yeah, I know the. I, I was actually in it because I'm getting ready to leave and go on a trip where I'm going to be gone for a week and a half training. But, but um, I always take a few MREs in case my regular food source just fails and I'm stuck in the truck or something. I always got MREs with me, and the MREs that I have did have the date on the box. And they did not have dates on the individual packing of the package for each MRE. So I think that might be the thing, depending upon how you store them, where you would find that date. But other than that, I don't, I don't really have much knowledge on that subject. Yeah. Because one of my worries is buying stuff, buying some, and I don't even know these might already be 10 years old. Right. Well, and then a couple of things about MREs and I'm assuming you guys can hear me now. Yes. Yes. Um, I used to keep MREs in my vehicle, like Craig's talking about kind of his emergency food. And then I actually started looking at the package and realized that they wouldn't last through a year here in Colorado due to temperature swings. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of, of keeping them in your vehicle all year long went out the window. And then another thing that I've really noticed when I was helping out with some adventure races and then my own backpacking is, people who do big changes in diet often don't do well. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they would, they would bring their MREs and their body would rebel, you know, whether it was gut trouble or cramping or issues with too much sodium or, it, you know, a variety of stuff. And I'd always ask them, Hey, you know, what do you eat at home? Do you eat MREs at home? Have you ever tried to live off of MREs for two or three days? And the answer is all, uh, you know, I had one once. Yeah. So, you know, my recommendation is always like test stuff at home over a period of time, you know, two or three days and see how your body does on it before you decide that's what you're going to do somewhere where you don't have, stomach medicines or a bathroom or, or whatever else you might need really hand, handy. Um, cause there was a lot of guys that were just simply shut down based on what they were trying to eat because they hadn't proven it out to start with. Yeah. And, and like Craig is talking about, there's, I mean, the backpacking freeze dried food industry now is insane. Um, with all the different stuff that you can do and choose and, um, you know, it figure out, Hey, this is kind of what I eat at home and I can get this freeze dried meal that does very similar to what I eat at home and test it out and see if it's edible. And, and if your body's good with it before you need to rely on it. Heck yeah. Yeah. Get to know what it is that you're, you're storing. 
Um, and again, Karen, some more insight. Cool, dry place, but not to let them freeze, not because the food will go bad, but because the packaging may break. Great, great mm-hmm. uh, Absolutely. input. Yeah. And then the food goes bad because it breaks. Hey, one food source that we haven't talked much about yet is Daytrex meals. And if your audience doesn't know what that is, that's D-A-T-R-E-X meals. Typically what goes on lifeboats, mm. they're small package. They almost look like cookies. Uh, some people say they almost have a taste like a pecan sandy cookie. Mm. Uh, and and I would agree with that. They're Sounds not, delicious. They're not bad. Okay. Um, they're not bad. Uh, but the same thing that Scott was just saying is that I've had people come to class and they attempt to go through a three or four day class with Daytrex meals. And that's all they're going to eat because that's what they use for, for survival planning. And they, they get about a day and a half or two days in and, Either their body rebels or their morality does, meaning it's just like, oh, my gosh, again, I've got to eat another one of these cookies. I mean, you even if it was pecan, actual pecan sandies, that would get old quick if you're eating that breakfast, lunch and dinner. And so that that is something uh, just piggybacking on what Scott said, along with these Daytrex meals, because that's a real common one. And I keep those, too. And they're not as success, susceptible to temperature variances as as uh, maybe your MREs are. And so it's not a bad solution to have as a, what I would call an emergency food source. Well, to me, it makes sense to have a variety. And so I'm not just, I just don't have peanut butter and crackers. I'm also going to have cheese. I'm going to have some breads and not that that's my examples, but sure. Yeah. I want to, I want to have variety and the, uh, the possibility of mixing and matching because that just adds more. It's, it's a morale Mixed. boost. It, it is. is it, it is. Boost. It is. Yeah, especially especially for modern Americans. I mean, shoot, you look at a lot of cultures, and if they have rice or beans or whatever their staple is for every meal, they're a happy camper. But, you know, when was the last time any of us ate the same thing for three meals in a row, let alone, you know, five or six days of three meals in a row. It's just not something we do. So it's not something we're used to. Unless you're me and you're working grave and you're not paying attention and you're just hungry. <laughs> um, well, and, I but, would bet even yeah. then. Oh no, I'm up. kidding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But again, these are things that we can work on now and we can make sure that we are properly prepared because what's going to happen. I'm sure I'm positive. Whenever the next catastrophe comes, someone's going to think back and go, Oh, I should have listened. Damn it. No, go on Google right now. Find whatever the hell you want. Place an order. Yeah. Out of all this stuff that, that this panel has said over the last several episodes, I think people need to listen to what you just said as much as anything, which is start now. Really? It's, it's critical. And people are going to ignore me saying that and they've ignored you saying it and they're not going to do anything because they're normalcy biasing everything and everything's going to be fine. And Putin's not actually going to nuke us and blah, 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 blah. And what happens if he does? Well, if he doesn't have an army, what else does he have to fall back on? He has nukes. But that's another story. That's another discussion. But the thing about this, though, is if we're buying this food now, this doesn't mean it's it's not going to be a waste of money. It's not going to be stuff we're going to throw away because we can use it. We can implement it. So, OK, so I might have some stuff on the shelves right now. Sure. And it's time to rotate it out. We're going to put the, we're going to add this. This is going to be part of our dinner tonight. 
it doesn't it's 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 usable and sure the two-year-old might not like it but yeah there's a group that i taught last week it's a private group so i don't want to say who it is but i teach i've been teaching them every year for about 10 years and this is how they do it they have a very uh, a very good community of people that come together and they practice survival and disaster readiness and there's some reasonings behind that are that are not important to this discussion but but one of the things they do is that each year they come together for a little over a week and they all just sleep in tents and they bring their disaster foods. And they basically one way that they do a lot of this is they have contests to see who can come up with the best food hmm. out of that stored material. And they're not under stress, but they're actually just fixing the things that they have stored, like beans and rice and what other stuff like that that they've stored. And it's not extravagant. They're all, none of them are wealthy people, um, but they are literally building a community right now on how to do these things, just like Scott was saying, and live for at least a week eating these things and finding out, you know, my gut does not like that. I've got to come up with a better solution. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a bad way. I, I, I teach them. I don't teach them those things. I teach them some other things, but, but, um, it, I, I've been in awe of them. I've learned a lot just by watching them, listening to them, and and listening to them discuss basically the AAR of the week and seeing what works and what doesn't work. It's been good stuff. I think it's a big recommendation I'd make to people for sure. It just makes sense. Did you want to talk about uh, you know in the backcountry plan yes. A? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So so basically, what we did is we went from we're out in the wilderness getting water. Then we kind of come to, okay, water at home, storage, food storage at home, now food out and about. So take it away. Well, so if Shane was here, who is an extremely high-performing individual, he, he would say cold. he's had a couple. Yeah, yeah, that's because of the low body fat. Exactly. The guy moves along just fine on the trail, even when he's like thousands of feet higher than where he's accustomed to being. I can tell you that. Uh he'll say that food is fuel, right? And so when we're talking about these high performance um, situations, which even stress is a high performance situation, right? A survival situation is going to stress your body enough that your appetite is going to end up being higher. But if you're actually out there for moving, um, you have to think in terms of your food being fuel. And so typically, um, what I use on the trail. Uh, first of all, I got to say, I've discovered these peak refuel meals. I used yeah. to make all my own dehydrated, you know, I dehydrated my own food, did all of that. Um, but honestly, for the amount of time I'm out there, yes, they're expensive, but they taste good. It's really good. Incredibly good nutrition, like high protein. There's very few ingredients. There's not a bunch of garbage that my body will rebel against, which is true of just about all the freeze dried meals, my body will rebel against because it's just crappy food in general. Uh, so I'll have a peak refuel meal a day. And beyond that, I'm typically taking um, hard cheese, like a cheddar or something like that. Manchego. Um, I'll take uh, a few uh, small tortillas. I make homemade granola bars, the recipes on our website. Um, you know, a couple, three of those a day plus one peak refuel meal will keep me going uh, for quite a while. So that's that's my typical on the trail eating for what that's worth. Scott, what do you have? 
Uh, so I do similar, but I carry more food. Evan can get by on a, on a lesser amount of food than I can. Um, so I not, not too terribly different from what he carries. Um, I'll typically do another peak refuel meal. If I think I'm going to have time, you know, one for lunch, one for dinner, um, or even one breakfast and then one dinner and then and a lighter weight. Um, I add in bagels to go with my cheese instead of tortillas. Um, if it's a shorter duration trip, I'm going to take fresh meat and some fresh vegetables. Cause that's what I eat at home. And I just do better putting that in. So that's, you know, your cold cuts and, you know, normally something like celery or carrots or, you know, just, just something to get some greenery in my gut. Um, used to be a big fan of peanut butter, but these days too much peanut butter for too many meals is kind of hard on the gut. But if your gut can take it, it's really, really hard to beat peanut butter for good energy in a dense, compact, not too heavy form. Um, I forget how many hundreds of calories there is per ounce of peanut butter. Um, but again, you know, a lot of this is figuring out what works for you and what you're willing to carry and, and testing it. So Karen asked about fruit on the trail. Um, that that's a great question. And I should have mentioned that, um, for two to three days, it doesn't become a big deal, but that's an area where I actually invest in weight and you can get those, uh, applesauce packets that are meant for kids. Um, and those are great. I will throw in, if it's a longer trip, I'll throw in, I'll plan on having one of those at least every other day. And I'll tell you what, if you've gone two days without that, and then you have some of that applesauce, that is heaven. That's just a wonderful, uh, treat really, uh, dried fruit. I do use some, uh, back when I was dehydrating more, I'd usually carry some dehydrated apples that weren't when you dehydrate yourself, you don't have to make them like crispy. You can just make them like apple leather. And I used to carry those some, um, sometimes I'll, I'll get some dried fruit from the store. But the other thing is my homemade granola bars have craisins in them. So there's some fruit consumption there anyhow. Um, and yes, you can make, I see Matthew's question. You can make fruit leather. You can make fruit strips. If you have your own dehydrator, I think it's the harvest, something that I used and, you know, I've produced a lot of that. Um, and, and fruit you leather, you can, you can buy in the store fruit leather. But you, if you spend a little bit of extra money, you can get some pretty, I guess, hardy is the way I would put it. Fruit leather, not like the fruit roll-ups we had when we were kids, but like actual dried fruit bars, so to speak. What I'm thinking is kind of funny about what you guys are discussing and a lot of this discussion. And then Evan brings up the, the applesauce packets it just reminded me. So when I go for weeks at a time at Darcy, it's non, it's not nonstop, but it is easily a hundred hours of training in a week. And it's, we don't really stop for breaks. We don't stop for lunch or anything. We definitely don't go out for dinner or anything. Everything's on site. We eat, we eat as we go. And all the stuff you guys are talking about, these are things that I purchase and have on site that I we're just, we're, we're, we're moving and we're moving, grab it out of my pocket, eat really quick, and then continue on with the training. And there's, there's definitely 
Um, th- there's a, this crosses over into active lifestyle to training, to survival. Uh, th- this is, this is pretty cool because how applicable it is to more than just survival or just backpacking. Craig, what's your kind of go-to when you're teaching a class? I know you don't have to carry it all on your back, but I'm sure you've got some great answers. Um, if I'm traveling light, like we're describing where I might have to carry something, then I'm a huge fan of what I call GORP, which is basically my mm-hmm. own version of, you know, I guess you're what you're calling a granola bar, which is, you know, my wife makes it, but I'm, I'm just like Scott described. I'm a huge fan of peanut butter and mm-hmm. it yeah. still sits well with my gut. So we make a GORP that has um, peanut butter in it and, that is just a go-to because it has such a variance of items in it that depending on which handful you get, you'll get a different handful of food every time you eat. Mm. So it's not a bad solution. Uh, but I'm a big fun, of, a big fan of dried fruits. Oh my gosh. Because they're so lightweight, you could package them up, vacuum seal them, put them in packs, and they're just so easy and light to carry. And it's just, I mean, eating some dried apples out on the trail, is yeah that's nice real nice hydrate them a little bit put them in a cup make a tea some apple tea and eat them as you're drinking your tea that's a nice little solution thanks evan i've been looking for that i've been trying to find it so i could check yours out yeah it's kind of buried more deeply somebody at some point actually did a nutritional analysis and said that's actually got better nutrition than any of the over-the-counter energy bars you can buy. I don't know how true that is, but I can tell you that one is very filling and they'll keep you going for quite a while. They'll also keep you regular. Mm, yeah, I bet. Yeah, and that's important. Hey, no that, joke. Yeah. You don't want to be humping any more stuff in your gut than you have to. You might as well clean it out. Yeah. And it's a distraction. And um, my buddy, John, the fish cop, uh, almost a year ago told me about, is it pemmican? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old school way of doing uh, yeah. stuff. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but frontiersmen, you know, Daniel Boone, Kenton's and those guys, they would make pemmican and there's a lot of different variances and depending upon who you listen to or what it was made of, but they would render some animal fat of some sort and mix in whether it was berries or nuts or some variation of it. The one that, that I've seen a study on contained uh, bear fat, uh, boiled acorns, and some kind of berry. I can't remember what the berry was. It might have been a blackberry or something like that. And um, we were gathering foxtails for a video today. That's another one to add in because it's basically a millet. So you can add that in, create a flower from it. But it's it's interesting the different recipes that people say is pemmican. <laughs> well, and and then the other thing that, can't be emphasized enough is a lot of those guys starved a lot. Yes. Like, like going without meals and you know, there's a reason that the winter was called the starving time. And that was, that was nearly universal for people who were on the move, you know, and that's, and that's one of the reasons when people start talking to me about bug out that I just kind of glaze over because historically the mountain men were going into the mountains with hundreds of pounds of food per person and still usually starving before spring. Um, you know, so, so 
that's where, you know, we're talking shorter duration stuff. And, you know, I, I remember back when I was doing the trail crew things eight days at a time and, and we all had kind of our foods that we took, but eight days of food for an entire crew was a lot of food. And, you know, granted we were doing manual labor all day, but that's not too terribly different from trying to move and, and do stuff throughout the day. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, multiple horses of, of food to keep a crew going for eight days. So it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about backpacking three or four days, but if you start talking about longer term kind of circling back, it's a whole different ball game. Do you guys want to bring up what's going on in chat? Yeah. Karen was just, just for asking, reference. Karen was just asking if hard tack is pemmican and they're two different things. Hard tack is just a really dense bread and pemmican is what we were describing earlier. It's has, you know, either a smoked meat or a, or a salted meat in it and berries and, and mashed together and held together with some sort of animal fat. And oftentimes some sort of nut or grass-based seed crushed into a flour or what have you. If you've ever gone to the store and it's the, uh, they have the bison and, and different, I'm trying to remember the brand of it. Um, they sell it with the jerky and it's, it's, it's not inexpensive, but it's basically a meatloaf with other stuff in it. And Hmm. that, you know, you can, you can get individual like little jerky strips of pemmican and I've eaten it. Um, but, but traditionally my understanding is basically they'd have the pemmican and it'd be sealed in something, whether it's a rind of fat or, you know, a, a, uh, a gut that they'd cleaned out and sealed it and, and you'd slice off and eat pieces of it. So it was, it was almost like a, a fruit and, and grain and meat meatloaf that you could eat that was, you know, kind of mashed together and, and preserved. So Sounds think awesome. of a, yeah, think, think of like a really juicy, I don't know, uh, jerky or something like that. Only there was a lot more to it. Um, but you can, you can buy the pemmican strips in the store. They don't call it that, but that's essentially what it is. And I just can't remember the name of it right now, but they've got various, and I've used those on the trail. Um, the problem is those, you got to kind of buy the day before you leave. Cause they don't last if you keep them on the shelf. Um, and various pemmicans again, kind of like Craig was talking about, depending on whose recipe you look at and who you talk to, some people say that they've got a long shelf life. So other people say, yeah, three, four weeks is about the most you're going to get. Um, but it's beef yeah. fat. There's no, you won't. I mean, this is Scott. Scott's saying it very well. Think about it. It's fat. I mean, and it's fat that's not refrigerated or salted or anything. It's just fat. Yeah. I fat mean, meat and fruit. <laughs> and I mean, with the, it, it, it's not going to last very long, you all. And Scott said it best when he first came on. If you're not regularly eating these things, it's going to be difficult unless unless you're hungry. Yeah. Well, and that's so here's go ahead, Scott. I was gonna say that's the same with the hard tack, which is probably similar to the dry text that you were talking about earlier, Craig. Is 
man, if you've ever eaten real hardtack or, <laughs> or pilot breads, kind of another name for it. Life boy crackers is another, another name. You need a lot of water even to yeah. swallow that stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. Cause it, it is dense and dry and, you know, think about eat, trying to eat a piece of, uh, like press board wood. <laughs> That's a yeah. good example. It, you, so you, good. you take a bite and then you're drinking a, a half a gallon of water just to get that bite down. It feels like. Yeah, man. So, that's actually a great segue to the thing I was going to mention. And, you know, I don't know, it, it's, this is probably something that Shane could speak better to, but, you know, when I was fighting fire, this probably came up earlier, you know, I was, I was a hot shot, So wildland firefighter and, you know, so your, your body's in extremis for weeks at a time with very little break. And I found, you know, it depends on what fire you're on. Sometimes you're eating MREs, which is why I really don't eat MREs now because I know what they do to my gut over the long term. But uh, then if you're on a big project fire, they'll bring in a catering truck. And the catering truck was always like, okay, we're going to treat these firefighters and we're going to cook steaks. And I couldn't eat the damn steak because it was hot and my body was an extremist and there was no way I could process that meat. So you know, I would, and I don't know if maybe this is just my bodies, other pe people's bodies, but these foods that require so much water, uh, to, to digest, you know, just the digestive task was something that my body was not up to because it was in such extremis. You know, I could eat any of the grains, you know, give me pasta with a little bit of meat, but I couldn't eat your damn steak. And, you know, I, I'm sure that Shane could speak more to this, but I'd go all summer essentially starving, and then once the work ended and I was able to eat, my body slowed down, then I'd bulk way up. Um, but in, in some of these circumstances, you may not be able to eat those dense foods. I, even on the trail now, if I'm backpacking and it's warm, like I've gone on trips where I couldn't eat because it was too hot and my body was just pushing too hard. And all I could take in was just more water and, you know, whatever drink mix I had in the water to keep the water balanced up with the electrolytes. So that's a consideration as well, I think. Well, and, and we never like on the trail crew, depends on the crew, but on, on most of my crews, we'd take turns cooking dinner and it kind of became a competition. And, but yeah, we were never eating anything like steaks and potatoes and stuff. We were, you know, pasta was, was a frequent one. Um, Mexican foods were pretty frequent. Um, you know, all those, all those kinds of things that don't take as much water to digest. And man, there was people I worked with that would not eat lunch because of the heat. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I ate for lunch a lot on the trail crew was like tuna with a little hot sauce on uh Triscuit crackers. And, and usually earlier earlier in the in the hitch i'd have fresh fruit and then some dried fruit later and like there was a lot of there was a lot of lunch times where that was like getting that down was all that i could do to get it down knowing that i had to get some had to get something in there to to keep going um but yeah yeah if it's hot out and you're not sitting in air conditioning you definitely don't want to be planning on on eating a bunch of really water dense food that takes a lot of time for your gut to digest. Is that something you've run into Craig? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's, that happens to me all summer long. I, I, because I'm out so much, I used to not, I, 
I used to not teach classes in the summer because I don't like being out when it's super hot. But we've had so many classes in the last two years in the summer. I I rarely take food. I mean, very, very little food. And it sounds a whole lot like what Scott just described. I, I, I'm not a big fan of tuna, but I'll take those small packets of chicken and basically eat them with some crackers. And that is about it. And, I'm and excessively hot. Yeah. And water and, and lots of water. And 30, 20 years ago, we didn't have packages of chicken or I would have, I would have chosen that too. But yeah. And, and, you know, the water thing can't be overstated. Looking back, I went borderline hypernutrimic pretty much every afternoon. But mm. in those days, I had no clue. I was just trying to drink enough water to keep going. And there was always a period in the middle of the afternoon where I'd start to crash. And like a, a candy bar is what I used then. And that would kind of give me some quick sugars and get me through the rest of the day. And looking back, you know, different, different candy bars probably works better. Uh, I used paydays for a long time until I got sick of them and then others, but yeah, yeah. That the, the, the hyponatremic and electrolyte balance cannot be overstated on how critical, I mean, when I was helping out with that adventure race there for five years, the number of people that came through that had enough water on board, but were hypernutremic and, and cramping and, and it was amazing talking to these guys like, Hey, you know, when was the last time you had some electrolytes? Oh, I've been eating food. Well, when was the last time you had electrolytes? I can see your shirt is soaked with sweat mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you're starting to get salt rings on your shirt. Oh, you know, and do you have them? Yeah. But I, I never use them at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get some electrolytes on and that would fix them up. Nice. Well, that reminds me also of Rabdo. I don't even know what you're talking about. What is that? Okay. So basically. You mentioned it before. Yeah. 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 So uh, high exertion activities and not enough calorie intake, not enough nutrition, and your body starts pulling your proteins out of your muscles. Oh yeah. Okay. And so I thought you were talking about some sort of product. Oh no. So, so the idea though, that you need to maintain, you can't just be drinking straight up water and just one thing you need to have a balanced nutrition or your body is going to fight against you because it's going to be pulling, it's going to be pulling that nutrition from anything it can, if you're not feeding yourself and that might be coming from your own muscles. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I do electrolytes, all summer period. Um, because I found that, you know, living in a desert environment and a guy, I'm a guy who sweats, but if I have electrolytes once a day, I stay more hydrated period Hmm. than, you know, and, and I'm, I stay hydrated most of the time, but that, that feeling of dehydration and that thirstiness just doesn't develop the same way. If I have, you know, just one, one liter per quarter, whatever you measure in electrolytes a day. So, so Karen just asked, what about pineapple juice? The, the pineapple juice fix for electrolyte def, uh, deficit. Is that real or is it a myth? I have no idea. I have yeah. no idea. I sounds know. good. I mean, it yeah. sounds good. I know that coconuts, um, are supposed to be good for, for like IV replacement. Um, and I've been told electrolytes, but 
Oh, and pickle juice. Yeah, pickle juice I've been told about, but I've never, I haven't heard of pineapple juice, but don't see why it wouldn't be a thing. Hmm. Lots of pineapple juice and Karen. Yeah. Yeah, I've gotten in the habit of taking pickles with me on classes now just to eat them at every meal, just get some salt. But I really like pickles. It's almost like a dessert to me. I'm a big fan of pickles. So. Yeah. So for you guys, when you are going from point A to point B, wanting to carry as little as possible, what do you have for to to supplement for your food? If you're gonna if you're gonna try to forage on the way or oh, that's how do you plan that out? Time. Um you know, basically I just carry an extra day's worth of food beyond what I think I'm going to need. And, you know, I also can get by without food for a couple, three days pretty easily. So, you know, between those two things, you know, I'm good to go. So it's, so from a backpacking standpoint, you know, you start cutting weight, right? You're, you're young, you're strong, you carry a huge pack and then you're like, you get older and I got to start cutting weight somehow. And the last frontier is always the food because people tend to carry much more food than they need and heavier food than they need. And so eventually you get to the point where you actually start cutting into your food and, uh, you know, then you can get to the point where you cut into your food so much that you know how much you need. And I just take that and add a day's day's worth to it. And that's good enough for anything I do. Is there any way you guys differentiate whether you want to carry more water and something freeze-dried versus something that's all self-contained? Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna be able to to find water reliably, you want it freeze-dried, less weight on the back. Yeah. Yeah, you you don't want to carry that water inside the food if you can help it. The caveat being you got to be able to digest the food. Yeah. And you know, this these peak refuel meals are far ahead of the pack, but if they were all that in a bag of chips, I wouldn't carry homemade granola bars and I wouldn't carry applesauce packets and cheese. So um, it's, I, I don't think 100% freeze dried is, is that good a solution. Especially if something goes wrong and you don't get to the water you expected yep. or, yep. Yep. or you can't e- eating. I've, I've had folks tell me about being stuck in situations where they couldn't, um, they couldn't get the water they needed or couldn't get it cooked. And when you're not hungry, I keep emphasizing that when you're not hungry, that's difficult. When you're hungry, you'll eat it. But e- even if you don't have the water it, or let me, excuse me, if you don't have the water and you try to eat one of those freeze dried meals without it, it's, it's really bad. It's a I real problem. It. it, it does a couple things for you. You have a, a lot of difficulty getting it down. It pulls all the moisture out of your mouth which makes it even harder and then when it gets in your gut it just expands rapidly and so it just it just it makes you feel terrible i've done it just to try it and see what it's like so i could experience it and it it just sucks <laughs> it just you're sucks. better off not eating it i assume i mean i, would, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't would. yeah and evan Man. i think can't remember if it was evan or scott said this but one of you just said it's valuable to just go without food on occasion so you know what that's yeah. like yeah. We've taken, we've taken, don't want to give too much away in our level two classes, but we, we throw surprises at our level two students. And last year, one of the surprises we threw at a couple of them is 
we I handed out cards and all these different things happen to people that are surprised. It's just my no Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. My version of stress inoculation. Right. And there were a couple of people and I was one of them that had to deal with the whole weekend without any food. You're, the card that they drew was you don't get to eat all weekend. That's Friday to Sunday. And the beautiful thing of it is people found out, oh, cool. I didn't die. I didn't eat for three days and I didn't die and I'm going to be okay. And I don't feel bad. I didn't get that terrible headache that I thought I was going to get. And if you don't regularly do that, it's no different than what Scott was saying earlier about the food that you regularly eat. If you change your diet entirely, then it's going to be a problem. And if you never fast, then when you have to, then it's could be a problem. So try it every now and then for various reasons, I'm not saying it's a healthy thing to do. That's something you need to check with your doctor on, but it's something from a survivalist perspective that you should at least consider doing and seeing what it's like, what happens to you. Well, and, and part of that is how, how are you going to react to other people socially? You know, because the, the hangry thing is real. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's funny. We all laugh at the Snickers commercials here. I have a Snickers. You're not acting like yourself, but yeah, knowing how you're going to not just how your body is going to react to not having food um, and what's your function level and all that kind of stuff. But how are you going to be able to interact with other people and people around you, especially if you're trying to get stuff done? Being That's aware of your great. limitations at all levels is important. That's a great point, man. We talked about it in that first podcast. I called it tactics and some people call it teamwork, but the mindset skills, tactics, and gear is how you interact and work with other people strategically. It, it's every facet of everything we've talked about. If you've got the food or they have the food and you don't and vice versa. And you think about this from the perspective of what Evan brought up earlier from your neighbors. And again, it's not the zombie that's trying to hit you with a machete or a bat or whatever. And, you know, you get to play video game stuff. It's it's your 80 year old neighbor. That's widowed and there she is and she needs some she needs a blanket or she needs some food. Is that who you shoot in the face and then eat her? You do in the movies, but in the real world, it might be something different. I think we should at least consider how we work with other people and develop good, good relationships with our neighbors and, and those that we're backpacking with, those that we're in the campfire with, whoever it is that we're around. Well, and, and that 80-year-old woman that you just gave a little food or a little a blanket to may have knowledge from her childhood. Yes. May, may know how to sew, may know how to can. You betcha. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that she may know that we don't know just because of, of the age that she lived in. Absolutely. So, so just because she's not standing there, you know, next to you tacked up or, or, you know, feeding you doesn't mean that she doesn't have something to bring to the table. Certainly. hundred percent, dude, hundred percent. So I think I have one last uh, topic to bring up and it's when you're out and about and some of the things we've been discussing also is, is efficiency and it's being prepared and being smart about what we're doing. Um, how are you heating this stuff up? What are the, what are the, uh, 
methods you're using? Are you using any special fuel sources? Are there any fuel sources that if you're stuck at home and there's no other fuel and you have to have something stored, what would it be? Propane well, on, the, on the barbecue grill. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the house, at the house, we stockpile propane on the yeah. trail. I use an alcohol stove. Now I heard, and I don't, and, and the, the, the source of this information also is not sure. And I said, I'll bring this up in the podcast. Uh, Sterno, is that alcohol based? I don't, I don't know. know if it is. Okay. Is I don't it? believe it's alcohol based. Okay. I think it's a naphtha, naphtha based gel, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Is it, does it produce a hot enough flame to boil water? I've never used it. I got no idea. Yeah. I, I have used been, it since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been it's told great. yes. I've okay. never used it just because it's heavier than just raw alcohol. So I've never seen the reason to mess with it and carry it. Yeah. And I've seen it. I've seen it used. It works. It works to, to heat things, but I don't know if it brings the temperature high enough. Sterno is a brand. Sterno is a brand of jelly denature alcohol sold in a can okay. meant to be burned directly in its can. That's yeah. what I just found. Cause you know, Wikipedia okay. is smart. Yeah. Well, and I see it with caterers all the time. Yeah. We so it's blind, alcohol, blindly, blindly it's a, believe Wikipedia alcohol yeah. in a, uh, some kind of substrate, but yeah, it's heavier than just regular alcohol. And to be clear, I don't use one of the pop can alcohol stoves. I used to, but, uh, I'm a big fan of the Trangia, um, alcohol burner because you can burn as much as you want, tamp it out and then screw the lid back on, uh, which is not the case with most alcohol burners. And, you know, I've done the liquid fuel, the white gas in the winter. I kind of, well, if I'm just prepping meals in the winter, I'll use uh, an alcohol stove as well for myself. But if it comes time to start melting snow, uh, I don't want to use the fuels that I have carried in. So I'll try to do that on a wood fire. Um, but as far as just straight efficiency, backpacking, heating enough water for the peak refuel meal or my morning coffee, the alcohol stove is the way to go. And I do have a specific way that I've set that up. And there's a video on our YouTube channel where I talk about my little homemade setup for how to use that Trangia and it, it works really well. Uh, I inevitably get the question, well, does it work at altitude? Um, yeah, so far, 12.5, I think, is the highest I've used my alcohol stove. But I know that, uh, you know, climbers on McKinley use alcohol stoves. And the reason that I prefer the alcohol stove is uh, it's just stupid reliable. There's no gas pressure issues. There's no needle jetting issues. You are literally lighting a pan of flammable liquid. Like, there's nothing more to it than that. And um, sometimes in cold temperatures i'll need to have that little trangia um it's just a little small jar looking thing i'll i'll have it in a jacket pocket i may even sleep with it in my sleeping bag um and if i do that then it's the fuel's definitely warm enough to just take take a lighter and and it's off and running and and i'll often even just use a spark rod to start my trangia to save my bic lighter in my pocket um you know, and, and, and the other nice thing about using alcohol based is you can always see how much food you have left. I have a pocket rocket. Sometimes when I'm feeling lazy, I will take that, but there's always in the back of your mind, how much fuel do I have left in this canister? 
and then you throw in that extra canister. So now you're tearing two canisters, <laughs> um, so you know, and you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of the, the stove that everybody loves. That's got a, uh, built-in cup and jet boil. Yeah. The jet boil, same thing as a pocket rocket, except for it's, you know, an all in, in one, but how much fuel do you have left in your, in your jet boil canister? Um, you know, whereas with the Trangia or any of the, anything like that, you can physically look and see how much fuel you have left. Um, so, and, and I'll come right out and say it. If you're really worried about your efficiency on the trail, whether it is making sure that you're using all of your energy and your energy envelope, um, making use of all your food and stuff, building a fire most of the time is an absolute waste of energy and time. It's just so inefficient, the amount of wood that you have to gather and, and all the work that goes into making an actual fire. And, you know, I'm not talking about, Oh, I lit this and it, and it, and it burned for a couple of minutes and then went out. And I'm going to say that I lit a fire. No, I'm talking about like getting a fire going that you're going to cook off of, keep you warm, et cetera. The amount of energy you expend to do that's just not worth it in most, most situations. How have the uh, fuel tabs or fuel bars worked out for you? And I could see them also being a part of starting a fire. So I did a, yeah, go ahead, Scott. Well, I was going to say the only time I have used those is actually to, to start fires. Um, the, there's some different products on the market that you can use. Most of what I've used, the old army MRE trioxane, I think it was. I bought a bunch of those at one point and I've used them to start fires. I've moved on from that to, uh, to using bicycle inner tubes because it's just lighter weight, more efficient, longer burn time, et cetera. Um, but what do you mean by that? The bicycle inner tubes? You just cut them into one inch squares and carry like 50 of them in a Ziploc bag and light them with a lighter. And then you've got two to three minutes of, of burn time. It's a great way to get a fire started. And it's so economically feasible. I mean, it's cheap. Oh, yeah. So what is this exactly? Bicycle tire, man. It's exactly what you think it is. Or yeah, uh, the, bicycle tube. Really? Yeah, oh. yeah the, the inner tube. Yeah. You just next time your kid's bike gets a flat or your bike gets a flat, hang yeah. that on the wall and process it. And you probably have a lifetime of fire starts there for what you're realistically doing. Oh, see, this is why you're here, Matt. Or this, this is, is awesome. Scott is here. This is why Scott is here. <laughs> Isn't there, don't we have a video about that on the website, Evan, on the longhouse? Uh, not about the bicycle inner tubes. I thought I did a video on that for fire at one point. Anyway. Oh, it might've been in the fire one. Uh, yeah. I used to use tea candles cause you know, we started a lot of fires out in the Pacific Northwest, which is a flipping rainforest. And you don't, you don't ever get wood from the environment or anything from the environment that you can actually get small enough and dry enough to actually start it. So you better be carrying some kind of fuel source that will burn long enough to heat your very smallest pieces of wood to the point that they can start gasifying and burning. And then you slowly and carefully ladder up from that. Yeah. So, you know, tea candles was initially it. And then we found out 
you know, I don't know who first mentioned bicycle inner tubes, but you can't spark them, but you can sure start them with a lighter and they burn for two or three minutes. And that's usually enough to get those very smallest pieces burning. And, you know, I carry the lighter that's in my pocket all the time has a little piece of bicycle inner tube wrapped around it. And, you know, you can carry a whole bunch of starts in a very small place, a space. So yeah, that's, that's the answer for us anyhow. And they're light, really light. So, but that yeah, I mean, cool. and, that, that, and that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand about fire is like the wood doesn't burn. Wood is not what burns. It's the gas that the wood is giving off when it gets to a certain temperature. And that's the same of every material. Um, you know, in fire, it's called flashpoint. Um, you know, so gas has a flash point and stuff like that. And some are lower temperatures than others, but whenever you are trying to start a fire with wood, you're always heating that wood and you got to get rid of the moisture and get it up to a certain temperature before you get that gas off. And that's why a lot of people that, that struggle with starting fire, like, man, I, you know, I've got it here. And it's like, well, it, it, it has nothing to do with applying flame to the wood. It has everything to do with heating the wood to get to that gasification point. So you can actually get fire. That's cool. It's eighth grade science, bro. It's, I don't know about, I know for you, you already said how old you are. It's been a couple of years since eighth grade. (laughs) Fuel, fuel source oxygen yeah. ignition source that's what yeah. you learned in eighth grade man that's what we all learned in eighth grade or if not sooner, I didn't pay so. attention in eighth grade either that's what i learned <laughs> when they uh when i went through fire fire training the fire pyramid and gasification and all of a sudden stuff that i had been doing for years because i knew it worked i now understood why it worked um and that's and that's kind of what i was talking about when everyone was talking about ladder is before you start your fire, you need basically enough wood sitting right next to you that you can sit there and feed the appropriate size wood to it for probably 30 minutes before you can consider that a fire that's going to burn on its own. And, and that's, you know, starting out with stuff that's smaller than a pencil and working your way up in, in gradual increments until you get to the point where you're throwing stuff on that's the size of your wrist or, or maybe a little bit bigger. And until that stuff's all burning good, you don't have a fire. And, and if you, if you start thinking about, okay, if I have to have enough tinder that's been processed into all these different sizes to sit here for, for 20 or 30 minutes and just feed the fire and do nothing else. Well, a you're sitting there and feeding the fire for doing nothing else. But B, how long did it take you to gather all that wood and process into those different shapes? Or you just cook on your transia or, or whatever else you're using that you carried with you and dinner's over and cleaned up and I'm sitting there chilling or, or, or sipping my apple tea. If I'm Craig watching you feed a fire and be a slave, <laughs> I know which I'd rather do. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I think we might have reached a point where Evan is turning into a pumpkin. Actually, he just said that in chat. Um, Any further stuff on fire, fire starting, 
If not, we can move on to our final thoughts. If we have we did we not talk about fire once before, Evan? Did we talk? I thought we did. Well, we talked about it in the shelter. Um, yeah. I don't okay. know that we ever got into the nitty gritty about how do you start a fire, but I remember you given preaching basically the same thing that Scott did, which is mm -hmm. like you need a lot of time to prep. Um, mm -hmm. So we did we we have covered it, I think. Uh, Fritos yeah. burn. Fritos burn really well. Hmm. The I guess what I'm getting at is is if we wanted to do another one, if people were interested, fire is its own animal. Yep. Yep. Because we could talk about all the intricacies of fire. And these guys could talk about some things that I can't talk about. So I mean we can we can go into why you should carry a lighter and why a backup lighter should be your backup to the lighter and and ferro rods and bow drill fire, hand drill fire, fire plow, those things are cool and fun, probably not the best thing you should rely on and all that stuff. That I think could be it's the its next own episode. Topic. I think it's its own topic, really. And I think Shane would be hopefully Shane's good enough to come back too. God, it was good having Scott here too. Um oh, so yes to return, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> you signed up, Scott. Now you're here, baby. Well, maybe we're a tag team. Maybe it works like that. There you I go. don't know. I was just hopping on so I had stuff to uh, tease Evan about tomorrow, but I guess that backfired on me. It's like it's, it's just like asking who sh who's going to do this. Well, I guess you just volunteered for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's how it happens. Yeah, I picked up this ferro rod from County Com. Haven't done anything with it, but just interesting. No, learning what options are and how they work and it's just kind of neat to experiment you know yeah craig it's worth doing that episode because although it's inefficient in general uh it also in other ways is the only answer yeah. and understanding the difference between the two and then how to get that answer when it is really the answer that you need is it's a good conversation well, it's kind of like what you said to begin with uh, about with the failures, learning from the failures and passing on those lessons. Any publisher that says don't publish those lessons, man, that I, I question their mm -hmm. what their motivation is. And yeah, because that's tremendous amount of value right there. If everyone would be open to listening to other people's lessons, think of the time, money, effort appendages we'd all save yeah man I, I that's why i like hanging around the people that i like to hang around with because they're open with their failures and we can all learn from that sort of thing publishers are in the business of selling books and i get it and i'm glad they were doing it but still yeah. uh it is what it is so we will do an episode on fire Roger and that. scott has been drafted um and so, uh, so Scott, I'll just add you to our big chat. Um, so let's get some final thoughts. And with that in mind, so final thoughts uh, about the topics we've discussed. And then also your uh, plugs, companies you want to plug, products that you like, things that you think people should support. And I'm going to say this again, my favorite, my favorite phrase to say with every one of these episodes Make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. Pay attention to the sources that these guys say. Give likes, subscribe, share if it's helping you. Craig? 
Yeah. Thanks for number one. Thanks for always having me on. It's, it's been fun. I always learn and, and I'm happy to share my failures <laughs> with people too. So um, thank you for that opportunity. The, uh, if you want to support anything I'm doing, one of the, we teach classes, come to one of our classes. I have an online school uh, as well. My books, I've written several books. Everything is housed at naturereliance.org. That's my website, naturereliance.org. Um, we have all the social media that everybody typically has in this, this group of people, you know, Facebook, we have a Facebook group, we have uh, Instagram, I have a YouTube channel, all those things. So please join us there. But the big thing is our online school right now, because you can basically train with me from anywhere in the world. And you can go to the website, and look under classes and NRS online membership. And that's the quickest way to get connected to that. And you get a free class by jumping in there. There's a free class on mindset, skills, tactics, and gear that I've been talking so much about. So, yeah, love to have you join us anywhere. Pay us a little money or come on free on Instagram or Facebook. I love sharing free information, too. And I love to haunt the um, Hill People Gear Facebook group, too, and listen and learn there. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks. Evan? Mm, boy. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a good time with this discussion, particularly East versus West. I'm learning more about from that than anything, just the environment matters so much. So I'll reiterate that, that you need to figure out what works in your environment and on the topic of food, what works for your body. Um, so at any rate, um, yeah. So Scott and I, um, you know, I have this company, Hill People Gear, and we do sell some gear, but we've also got some educational sources. We have uh, educational videos on YouTube. I posted one about the cook system I use. Um, and, you know, honestly, I would send people in Craig's direction. Craig, I remember when you started up that subscription program and I was like, oh, I'm going to have all this time and I'm going to do it. And I haven't. But for those of you out there who have the time to invest in good instruction, I think that would be an outstanding place to start. Um, Thank you. Thanks. I think that's I think that's all I got. Scott. Well, I uh, thanks for having me on. I like I said, I was mainly just going to creep so I could give Evan a hard time tomorrow, but. I, I guess that didn't work out, but thank you. Um, Evan kind of already covered the, uh, the Hill people gear angle and, and Craig. And I guess the, the one thing I would say is, um, you know, it, look at what worked historically, look at what people actually did historically. Don't, uh, don't buy into the hype and the mythos of this is what you need to do figure out figure out what they actually did and how things actually worked and then how that applies to your life um you know it's a bigger broader discussion than we want to go into right now so i'm going to keep it short but that's one of the things i like about craig is he's working from a basis of actual experience and skill and figured out you know he's a dude who has literally done clinical testing of of uh of water filters to figure out if they actually work and you know there's there's craig there's tony nestor shoot i i don't know if there's anybody else i would really throw on that list of people who are really teaching good stuff from a place of actual experience um so get your experience figure out what works for you Appreciate you, gentlemen. Thank you for the kind words. 
Cool. So back in October of 2016, these random people, Evan and Scott, sent me a video to, video to publish on the primary and secondary YouTube page. And it's still there. And it's called Who is Behind Pe Hill People Gear? <laughs> and so if you're not familiar with these guys, it is an older video. It's a couple years old, but it's still, eh, if you want to know more about these guys, there's a nice little uh, profile. Big thanks to the to panel. Clear, yeah. We didn't send that video unsolicited, just to yeah. be clear. Yeah. We're not <laughs> yeah, those guys. Say. <laughs> matter of fact, I, as a Craig, Craig, if you want to make a video, I will absolutely put it on there. Speaking of which, and I am also incredibly happy to share content. If you guys, and this goes out to any of my industry partners, any of my buddies, if you have new products, if you have things that, that need some special highlights, and I, I really enjoy sharing that stuff for some reason on Facebook, not Instagram, not YouTube, not anything else, but on Facebook, I've been getting some unusually high traffic and I don't know nice. why uh, there's a lot of also a lot of foreign influence, but it still clicks and it's shares and there's discussions and stuff. So yeah, if there's stuff you guys want attention to um, I now have, as a matter of fact, there's my second one right there. I have uh, two uh, hill people gear, chess rigs as we speak that I can just focus on and just post and uh, encourage people to go and visit. Um, it's nice to be able to be in a position where I can help out like that. And so when, when buddies or have, have things that they want to promote, I love being that conduit to help spread the word even further. So to, to those of you that are listening at home or wherever, and you happen to be a buddy or an industry partner, if there's something that you want highlighted, as a matter of fact, I just told, I've told Walter, Hey, this is really weird. If there's something you want me to focus on specifically, like any of these pistols, tell me and I'll throw it on a, on a, on a post. But speaking of industry partners, uh, big thank you to big Tech's ordinance, Filster primary arms, Walter, uh, all sponsors of the show. Also big thank you to the Patreon subscribers, Without your support, we wouldn't be able to do this. The live show is a benefit of being a Patreon subscriber of the network support level or above. Uh, we do open these up on occasion. Uh, some of these have been opened up. It's just been cool to, to have these interactions. Thank you, Karen, for your input. Awesome. Uh, uh, I'm glad you were able to watch. You might have to be on one of these in the near future. Um, your, your chat comments were really, really helped, and it's greatly appreciated. Um, let's see here. As I said before, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys had to say, find them on social media, uh, primary and secondary as well. We are on Instagram. I'm even, I'm on Twitter, uh, YouTube, Facebook, our own website. We have uh, all kinds of resources. All of this is free for your use. I, when I first started this, I vowed, I won't put any of the valuable information behind a paywall. It will always be available. Um, seeing the live show, it's going to be published. It's going to be edited. The audio is going to be balanced out. Then it's going to be available for everyone to use or to, to listen to, watch or whatever. So it's wonderful to provide these kinds of resources. It's wonderful to provide this caliber, this panel, this caliber of people that are, sorry, Craig, experts in their fields to share their insights. And we get to share, and just like what we talked about before, we get to share some of our failures with the hopes that these failures can help people avoid them. Because to be honest, we are all in this together. We are all on the same team. Um, 
And just to be able to support each other is, is amazing. So don't know what we're going to do. We might actually have another episode this week. We might have a cop one. As a matter of fact, I think I've been working on that. Um, but I think I'll have this edited and this will be released on Friday, this upcoming Friday. It's Wednesday right now. But until then, I'll keep on posting, editing, and other kinds of stuff. So that's all. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>